Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and you're listening to Wait, What? Comics and Pop Culture Podcast, coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I have yet another two-and-a-half-hour episode for you. In it, we bounce back and forth between comics new and old, talking Coyote Dog Girl by Lisa Hannawalt, The Uncanny X-Men from the days of Chris Claremont, the upcoming Complete Berlin by Jason Lutz, Legends of the Dark Knight, the old Batman series, Brink by Dan Abnett and Ian J. Colbard, Hey Kids Comics by Howard Chaikin, and much, much more. Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Please send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeb Lester. Graham McMillan. Hello. Hello, how are you? Oh man, Graham McMillan, it's a, <laughs> it's a uh, week. It, it's an oh man week. <laughs> it really is. It is though. No, like it's it super is. I I've um what not? I've been doing jury duty this week, and if you ever want to have a very surreal week, it's doing jury duty and doing jury duty selection in particular. Uh, literally the day after reading those fucking Batman comics. Oh man, <laughs> because you're ahead of everyone else, because I just read that and this, that, yes! I'm going to tease you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, but like, so that was I swear to God, Jeff, that is in my mind <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm going through jury selection. <laughs> oh man. Oh, I'm man. like, I'm going to have, like, if I get selected I'm going to have really intense conversations about where do you come from? What do you feel about God? I used to have faith. So Graham, as you know, hey, I, we normally let's 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 wrap about Bat Fifty Three. Let's wrap about Bat. Let's wrap. Yeah, uh, Batman Fifty Three. How did you feel about that? Uh, I liked it, but it's like at this point, I'm just a mark for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's. Uh, it, I honestly, I I I feel like I got a lot out of it emotionally, and I also finished it going. I feel like Tom King is now writing a Tom King Batman comic, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some sort of, uh, not self-parody, but, uh, you know, it was almost Tom King Batman by the numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, did you feel that as well? Well... And, and again, I say that as someone who read it and enjoyed it and was like, yes, yeah, like, I feel like he's continuing his emotional investigation of Batman. And I, at the same time, I'm like, however... There was nothing surprising in this way, in in this issue, in the same way that there was, like in the I Am Suicide arc, which mm-hmm. felt like uh, like a revelation to me, right? Or or you know, it, um, like even the the wedding arc, mm-hmm. I think was felt fresher to me than this arc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this arc was probably very problematic for me because, of course, on the one hand, I'm like, it's got. It it had it to me it had sort of a great almost classic hook, but I, and I'm glad oh, it the, didn't I, the idea go on. is great. Yeah, I, it like really the idea is. of Bruce Wayne is and to to be fair the the like quote unquote twist at the end mm-hmm. where where Alfred basically says like you bribed your way onto that that jury mm-hmm. also feels classic. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like and if, if you'd included that not as a twist but as a setup, mm-hmm. like I feel that that could be an episode of like Batman the animated series. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. So it is. It's a classic setup. Even that, as a little bit of the classic denouement, was was great. But kind of everything in the middle, and especially this issue fifty three, I had very difficult time with. Now, admittedly, it could be because of the week that I'm having. I just felt like it, I, I think 
if ever there was a week to give a bunch of comics like a pass for because I didn't have my head in the game, this would be one of those weeks. But I just, it kind of felt to me like there was, and I think this might have been something one of the whatnots pointed out in the comments threads, uh, that, that King was sort of continuing a little bit of that um, emotional pinup feel from issue 50 uh, throughout this. Where yeah, 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 well, there is. Did we not talk about that last time? I, I mean, maybe it was you. I could have sworn it was uh, something that, that one of the listeners pointed out that I was like, oh. It's, oh, it's yeah, very possible. It's very possible. So, I, I just feel that we have also talked about it. Yeah. Uh, but for myself, 53 is kind of actually where, uh, I, I, you know, maybe the reason why you were like, ah, this feels like, like Tom King Batman is I'm like, yeah, cause I think by sort of his grasp exceeding his reach, it kind of felt really flaily. It, it did, it did not. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't sell me, which was tough because, you know, he's like kind of doing all this like stuff that makes, that makes sense to me, uh, in the sense, in the idea of like kind of that idea of Bruce finding, essentially turning Batman into God, finding God within this sense of purposefulness and then using that idea of, you know, Batman is his god as a way to talk to the rest of people about Batman as their god and how that god is fallible, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, sh- I could have seen another context in which it might have maybe worked, but I it just felt too... Um, and this... This is a weird thing for Jeff to say. It kind of felt too formalistic, or it actually felt really um, failed to me. I'm thinking that actually one of the things that is what might work for you about Tom King and what doesn't work for me, or the reason why it's so almost frustratingly close is uh maybe it was a week or two ago I was reading some sort of BS. It was probably like a bleeding cool recap of some of the San Diego panels or something. And King was sort of talking about how his preference for for writing comics above other media is is that because it's so close to the bone yes. yeah. that, that he's like you're basically like examining your own id every week like you don't have time to control really what's coming out per se you know you have in order you kind of have to you know surf it i guess and so basically king king is very much talking um how do i put it he's he's very much like taking a kirby approach or he's he's sort of embracing that sort of Kirby approach of just kind of trying to push himself to the forefront of his thoughts and not having to have a chance to clean it all up but he's also doing it in sort of the very still in a very formalist more like structure and and I'm not sure that the two are necessarily that compatible you know um and I think the other problem, of course, is, is that for me is that Kirby's stuff works by being hyper compressed 
And I just feel like, I feel like this thing, even at three issues, felt like uh, a little too draggy. Like it was three acts structure, but it was kind of like three acts, you know, with each act across each issue, except each act more or less had all this, all the meat scooped out of it. So it didn't work for me is basically why I'm saying in a way that I, I found myself, um, uh, just frustrated, just really frustrated. I, I was going to say, it. it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's been issues of King's Batman in particular mm-hmm. that have not worked for you, but you haven't seemed as, um, like upset about that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, like it, it, right. it feels like you're, it feels like you're almost disappointed this didn't work for you. I, anyway, I, yeah. In the past, mm-hmm. Like, it's not worked for you and that's been fine or right. it's been, like, irritating. Right. But, but to hear you talk about this, it feels as if you're like, oh, but this should have been better. Yeah, this, this one was, uh, this weird mix of genuinely disappointed slash genuinely annoyed. Like it really was one of those deals where, and it's it's a shame because I really do think, uh, man, Lee Weeks and Elizabeth Brightweiser, oof, 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 that art looks so good. It was beautiful. Yeah, it, stuff. it is. It, it's so like I'm sure you've seen on Twitter people being like, well, both of them are right wing, and therefore we have to hate them. And I understand that impulse. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you also look at the work and you're like, oh, but shit, though. Yeah. No, like, no, no, it's no, much, no. it's much easier to, to write off Ethan Van Skyver, you know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I mean, and who knows to what extent, of course, if they really started moving into an active kind of bullying sort of situation, it'd be, it, but it would be, it would be hard. But like, I mean, that's the thing. Issues 51 through 53, that art is so, it reminded it's so me. Good. It's so good. It reminded me so much of Batman Year One without feeling like it was trying to be derivative of it, and that is such sure. a hard thing to do. Like, you know, Weeks got there naturally. That's kind of always been his style, but he's really continued to hone it. And and I think I, I mean I've there's times where I've really liked his stuff before, but I think you know starting with that Batman Annual. Uh, the team of him with Elizabeth Brightweiser is just like, man, it's strong. It's just great. So yeah, yeah. So, his, yeah. His, his his character acting is great, but his line yeah. right now yeah. is just lovely, isn't like, it? Super lush. Yeah, like yeah. It, and and you're right. The colors are like add a lot and are very reminiscent of uh, Richmond Lewis on year one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so on the one hand, I'm like, ah, oh, this is just a visual feast, and it's a classic story setup, and yet, dot dot dot. I was just like, oh god. But again, I don't. I think as we go on and talk, depending on you know, we always talk a little bit of normally we talk a little bit of news, talk a little bit of trash, and talk a little bit about comics that we're reading, and and this week I think. I just feel like I might well end up being super crabby on all fronts, which is... Oh, oh Jeff. I oh, know. No. I hey, know. I can talk about a bunch of things that I've read that I've really liked this week. And, Please do. And, and you, Jeff, you'll have read none of them. <laughs> Woohoo! Delightful. Uh, no, I, I say that because I got a bunch of stuff from John Quarterly and Fantagraphics that's coming out. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in in large part because I'm going to be doing stuff on it for for publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the thing in particular I really have to draw your attention to, like really strongly, is a book called Bastard, uh, which is coming out from Fantagraphics in October. I think I'm looking mm. at the yeah October, and it's by someone called Max. I'm going to ruin this last name, uh, De Radigo. D e d e r a d i g u e s. So I could be wrong. Right. Uh, more than anything, it reminded me of uh, Jason Shiga's Demon. Wow. But less surreal mm-hmm. and more like crime noir. Wow. Huh. The setup is this woman, the single mother, is on the run after a heist that she's been involved in. Uh, has the heist went well, but the aftermath has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And the heist was that 52 businesses and banks in the same city were were robbed at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. And she was part of the team that did this. But things have gone south afterwards, and she and her son are on the run because of it. Hmm. And things just progressively get worse for her. Hmm. But it's actually really a book about the kid. Huh. Hence, bastard, mm. uh, and it's it's great, Jeff. It's really, really good. I don't really want to say much more about it yet because a you've not read it and b it's not out yet for another couple of months. Mm-hmm. But just knowing what you thought of Demon, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like this is a book you'll love. Mm. Not even like this is a book you'll love because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, it, it really is. Like Shiga's energy is there. Mm-hmm. To an extent, his visual style is there, but but not entirely. Mm-hmm. But it's in service of an entirely different type of story, hmm. and it's it's just it's great. I tore through it. Hmm. It's really really good, and I, I I deeply deeply recommend it to everyone listening, but specifically to you. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. All right, I will uh, I will definitely uh, make that one to look out for. Uh, I also read Coyote Dog Girl, which is the new Lisa Hanawalt. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know my love of Lisa Hanawalt. Indeed. And this is her first full-length graphic novel. Mm-hmm. And it is literally about what the title says. <laughs> it is a cowgirl who is who is part dog. Because mm-hmm. uh, everyone's anthropomorphized, because of course it's Lisa Hanawalt. Uh, and it is... I don't even want to say like it's a parody of the Western as much as like it's a weird Lisa Hanawalt deconstruction of the Western. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in amongst the, the Western tropes that are present, you know, she's getting hunted down by the bad guys. Uh, the, the, you know, she, she gets rescued by indigenous people who like teach her the ways of the land type thing. Mm-hmm. There's like a very Lisa Hanawalt sense of humor. So like, the uh Dog Girl is literally in love with her horse. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, oh, horse, you're great. We just go riding. It's such fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason, well, one of the reasons that she's rescued by the, the indigenous people who are wolves mm-hmm. is that they really like that she made all her own clothes. And they're like, will you teach us how to make that the crop top? And she's like, sure. And they're like, we made one ourselves. And she's like, yeah, but you know, you put too many diamonds on it. It's a bit garish. I don't really like it. <laughs> uh, she introduces the reader, like, there's a so she gets rescued, uh, and and there's a like the 
page of like introducing the reader to all the different wolves. Mm-hmm. And it's literally, you know, here's so and so, he's the leader. Here's so and so, I think they like me, but they're a bit standoffish. Here's, I can't remember what this person's called, but they seem really nice. And like, like it just gets like weirder and vaguer and more, <laughs> like more honest, if that makes sense. Like yes. when you are introducing a, a bunch of people where you're like, yeah, we've not really talked much, but they seem nice, or mm-hmm. we got a lot of common, but they've never, like, they've never been mean. Right. And like, it gets that vague. And so like, there's all these like funny touches in the middle of this western. It's, it, again, Super enjoyable, but but very much relies on if you don't like Lisa Animal's earlier stuff, this won't convince you. Right, right. This isn't something that's going to make you go, well, this person's great. I didn't like her other books, but this one like is the winner. I I don't like I'm I don't think it's it's that sort of book. I think it's very much for Lisa Animal fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Woman World, which I I like started before and didn't finish. I, have I told you about Woman World before? No. Woman World is by an animator called Aminder Dalawar. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Dali Ball. Um, and it is literally why the last man without why, without Yorick. Uh, all the men in the world die. And it is what all the women do afterwards to restart society. And it is at once hilarious. Uh, there, there's a whole sequence where they're talking about like what their, what the flag of their new city should be. The basic premise is like this happens two or three generations after all the men have died off. And society has, because there's a backstory at the start of it, society has literally been destroyed, so they're rebuilding society from nothing. And, like, only parts of what we recognize still exist. Um, and so they have, like, we have a new city. What are we, like, what is our flag going to be for a new city? It's got to, and they say something like, it's got to be strong, but but vulnerable. And it has to make, all, like, women feel that they belong and that they they, they love it. And they come up with all these things and like, no, our flag is going to be Beyonce's thighs. And the flag is like a photograph of Beyonce's thighs. And that pays off a joke. That becomes a joke that pay off later in the book where they're like, we'll have to talk to the other cities to see if we have like a, a, a shared language. And all the other cities are also named after Beyonce's body parts. <laughs> uh, and so again, it's like, it's super silly, but there, there's such heart to this book. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's unexpectedly beautiful at times, hmm. uh, because there's recurring characters that are, that are there, and um, one of the the recurring characters is in love with another one who is in a relationship, mm-hmm. and you can't like just tell her this obviously, and so there's a lot of like unrequited love thing going on that 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 actually gets resolved really nicely and subtly at the end of the book. Um, but there, there's a lot of, of, you know, amongst, you know, as you can tell from the Beyonce joke, like it's, it's got lots of dumb jokes. Mm-hmm. There's also the surprising heart to it as well, mm-hmm. which is really nice and has, and I'm not going to say what it is or really spoil it, but it has this wonderful inversion of sentiment at the very end where the sentiment would have been 100% earned. Mm. There's a, there's a moment where you think like they've gone this this sentimental route and it's genuinely touching and then there's literally like you turn the page and they're like only joking but in such a way that it's funny enough right that you're like fuckers that's hilarious as opposed to I've just been completely manipulated <laughs> uh, yes so Woman World I want to say is out next month or maybe at the end of this month right uh, and again is really really good so those last two books are drawn quarterly. Um, Bastard is Fantagraphics. Mm-hmm. 
John Quarterly also sent me Jason Lutz Collected Berlin. Oh, holy shit. Which I've never read before. I've never read any Berlin before. Mm. Uh, and I'm only about 130 pages into it, but mm-hmm. it's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's fucking amazing. Yeah, I, I used to love it. And then, and then some point there was like a long publishing hiatus and I just totally fell off. So I, well, it, it, like they, I looked it up afterwards because he says in the, in the afterwards something along the like lines of like this book's taken two years, decades to complete, and I was like, "Huh, really?" And yeah, he started publishing it like twenty two years ago. Yeah, seriously, seriously. So I mean, and I was going to say I haven't like, read an issue or something. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read an issue in in like probably a decade, but I I had fond memories of it, and I was like, "Eh, I'll get around to reading it when it's collected," you know. And, yeah, uh, and it's it's out next month. Right. Uh, does it give it an actual date? No, it just says September 2018. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's it's like 600 pages on Jeff. Right. Like, it's a it's a brick. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's got to be enormous, and it's got to be an amazing read. I think it's really amazing that that, that and uh, Glenn David Gould's memoirs are coming out in the same year, because, like, Gould has been working on, has been talking about writing his memoir, like it's been his ongoing project for also close to two decades and is coming out and is a brick. It's literally being published in two volumes and uh, we'll have to see. As you know, Gould, who wrote um, Carter Beats the Devil yes, uh, is is a, is a bit of a um, high-end comic book nerd himself, so yes, it's kind of it, funny. Like, I want to say he's written, what has he written? Because he wrote, I know he's definitely written some escapists for, for Dark Horse, but didn't he write something else comic-wise? Uh, uh, well, I know that he's done the escapist stuff. He may well have done something larger. I remember that he had an at least one essay about um, comics, which was great, because it was him talking about, it, it might have been, he's written a few pieces about comics and comics art, because he was a comics art collector, and I, I think he had an essay about what his comics collecting habit meant to him. And it was really, he's like, yes, I highly recommend this book called Stuff to really understand. And somehow I managed to read the whole essay and be like, oh, I have to pick up this book. Picked it up and realized it's about hoarding. But I don't think he ever says that in his essay. He's kind of <laughs> like, I was like, ah, that's a tricky little thing to do, you bastard. So um, I, I, I'm looking this up. because You I should look it up. No, I want to say he wrote a JSA issue. Did he? That wouldn't surprise me per se, but hilariously, I'm I'm not finding it. Wait, his book is called "I Will Be Complete." I've just, like in mm-hmm. in trying to look this up. Yeah, I have, I found this instead. Wow, I don't know. I'll look at. I'll I'll try and find it later when I'm because I, I I've honestly just been like and like take note of this book to read later. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's it's the I've read and heard some excerpts uh from it because of course like literally over the years little bits and pieces he's released and it's quite good so um so i'm really kind of excited to have that come out but i also just thought it was kind of crazy that that and berlin are finally out more or less in the same quarter of the same year i think so it's it's not been what i've read so far berlin is I mean, just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. It, 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 if nothing else, even within the first, say, like 50 pages, mm-hmm. the the sense of scope mm-hmm. 
Like you really have this moment of like, oh yeah, this is this is this is actually an epic. This is not the you know self conscious comment people are like, I'm doing my magnum opus. This is incredibly subtly but incredibly obviously mm-hmm. an story. Mm-hmm. The where he's like, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing the grand sweep and I'm actually doing it right. Yeah, it it's it's amazing. It, it it's it's uh it's wonderfully humble. Mm-hmm. But at no point do you ever sort of escape the feeling of, oh, this is the real deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this mm-hmm. this is massive. Um, something else that I've I've talked about before, but specifically said that I didn't finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Puss. Exit stage left. The Snagglepuss Chronicles. Ah, you did finish it finally. Okay, I, I did. Think I finished that they, before they, you. Huh? They said they sent me the collected edition, and that's actually how I I finished it. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, I have, I have it all in front of me. I will just sit down and read this book now. Um, and you said you did finish it, right? I did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, was it just me, or did it seem to gain a lot from the very particular way in which it ended? I, 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 I was feeling generally warm about it, mm-hmm. and the way in which it ends, and I'm try, like, I don't know whether we should just spoil it or not. I, oof, it's hard because it's almost impossible to talk about it without spoiling it. Exactly. Well, it, yes. You know. You know, because it's it's the let shall we say it's the metatextual aspect mm-hmm. of the end. Yeah. That that like really won me over and mm-hmm. and in a weird way recast what I had previously read and and made me appreciate it more. It's mm-hmm. it seemed a more daring work because of that. Yeah, I you know, I know what you mean. Uh, I thought the ending was pretty clever. I feel like for whatever reason, I was in some ways mostly on board with the book more than I felt like other people I was seeing online were. And I, yeah, it's it, it's a weird book that I feel like a lot of people were disappointed by. Yeah, right, exactly. And for me. I thought that it was, whereas I actually thought that it wasn't disappointing. I enjoyed it, but I also felt like, uh, I felt like it was one of those books that was actually aided by my inattentive reading, I suppose, in, in the sense of every time I would read an issue, I was kind of like, I think there might have only been one point where I went back and read the issue prior to make sure that yeah. I was sort of still following the narrative flow. But mm-hmm. I I could see how, I think, someone paying close attention to the book might have felt like they were reading after the first issue, essentially reading kind of the same issue over and over and over again until the end. And for my... Oh, really? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I just sort of had that feeling. I, of, I, I, I would yeah. say that, like, as someone who read the collection, yes, right, you would have the, a better sense. Well, I, it, it didn't. It built. Like, oh, I, I, I would say that it's, it actually gained a lot from reading in a, in one sitting. Okay. Because uh, the subtlety came through, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. you do while you do have things that repeat, mm-hmm. they always move forward, even if in minuscule ways. Right. Right. And when you read one sitting you see like you're obviously much more aware of the minuscule ways. Mm-hmm. Uh and it and so that because for, for me, one of the things that didn't work when I was reading it in individual issues was again, like you, I was reading it sporadically. Right. And 
I, I, not that I, I didn't get the, the, the forward motion, but at the same time, I, I did see it as very repetitive. Right. And I feel like maybe a lot of people did, although I could be wrong, but for, for me, for whatever reason, each issue, more or less, I would start reading and it would, each issue sort of more or less won me over every time. Like there would always be some point in the issue uh, where I'd be like, I don't know. I don't think that I'm going to like this. Like, I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to remember where the turn was, but I remember there's some point where Snagglepuss is trying to comfort both Marilyn Monroe and, I think, Joe DiMaggio and uh, about their, about sort of, you know, their, the broken marriage. And I was very, like... At one point, I think maybe it was the Marilyn Monroe sequence. I was like, "This is this is not good." And then somehow by and the end of the that's issue, that's very early. I want to say that's I want to say that's maybe in the second issue. Yeah, yeah. And like it's it's very early in the overall story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, and is arguably the most um, unsubtle of the real world cameos. Yes, definitely. You know, like for example, the the first issue you have Dorothy Parker, but he, I feel like he does he really doesn't uh, Mark Russell really doesn't underscore it or go ah yeah. Dorothy Parker ah no. In yeah. fact, he might not even say the words Dorothy Parker in the book. I want to yeah. say he just called Dorothy. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the Mon- the Marilyn Monroe sequence in the Joe DiMaggio thing like feels very much like he's like, hey you guys, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio ah here's Arthur Miller ah. Yeah, uh, and and it it feels it feels more obvious and and less uh, errant mm-hmm. than 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 what I appreciated about the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, also, what, something that's funny is I could have sworn I read at least four issues, but I clearly didn't. Mm. Uh, because certain plot twists that happen, mm-hmm. I was like, I was genuinely shocked by. Ah, that's interesting. I, uh, so I clearly didn't read at least as far as the fourth issue. Yeah, that sort of makes sense to me because I remember there was stuff that I was reading and asking you about, and I think you were kind of like, "And eh, behind." So that makes sense. That being said, yeah, I ended up really liking it. I also really like Russell's wit is a very kind of unique thing. Like I guess, like he's got some really witty, like almost um, aphoristic type punchlines that I thought were tremendous and are usually like kind of written very deadpan. Like the delivery yes. is usually mm-hmm. very low key. There's not a lot of exclamation points or whatever, but it, but it kind of doesn't need it, but it, it does add that sort of, he can have a pretty good end of page punch on a couple of them that I remember being just like, Oh, this is, this is really what I think. of. This is really good smart. writing. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 So um, I'm very much looking forward to his Lex Luthor book. Yeah, the the Lex Luthor Porky Pig book. Porky yeah, Pig. That yeah, should be yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you saw that you saw that there's a the- a kind of sequel to Snagglepuss coming out, right? Uh, Green Lantern Huckleberry Hounds has been announced. Oh yeah, that's right. It has been announced. Right, right. Yeah, that that would be kind of amazing. Part of me was it's so funny. Part of me dismissed that of like, oh, it can't be a real sequel. I'm like, well, no, of course it can. Like I should really Well, it, exactly. It 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 and it it's it definitely 
Green Lantern, Huckleberry Hounds, Marcos and Rick Leonardi, so it will look great. Yeah. Set against the turbulent backdrop of the early 1970s, Green Lantern and Huckleberry Hounds join forces to take a stand on the issues of that era. Returning from recent duty in Vietnam, veteran Marine John Stewart, now a member of the Green Lantern Corps, contemplates what, if anything, he should do about the issues tearing his country apart. Meanwhile, Huckleberry's comments against the Vietnam War have left him a celebrity outcast, and a visit back home to Mississippi puts him face-to-face with the civil rights movement. Yeah. What can one man and one hound do? Oh my god. Yes. Yeah. But at the same time, when you finish the Snagopus, right. you really have that moment of like, oh, it is a sequel. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Very much so. So, good lord. We will, we'll, we'll it's have to. It's kind of amazing that, yeah. like, he's able to get away with this shit, you mm-hmm. know? Mm hmm. Yeah, very, very much so. Um,. Yeah, I look I look forward to that. Doesn't he have some other book coming out too? Like, is he? Uh, oh, he's got that uh, Vertigo title. He's got or... a, he's got a second coming coming out for Vertigo, and he's doing Dread right now for ITW. Oh, is he? Oh, interesting. Yeah, he's doing. Oh God, what's it called? I think it's called Under Siege. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Dread. It, it was it's essentially a class warfare book mm-hmm. in Dread that takes place in Patrick Swayze block, which I I don't know why Patrick Swayze block amuses me quite so much, but it really does. <laughs> it really, really amuses me, Patrick Lee's book. Um, this is the point where I recommend to people, including you, Jeff, but I know you don't like podcasts, that the most recent episode of the 2008 podcast is the Judge Dredd panel from mm-hmm. San Diego that Russell's on and he talks about his book. But also Evan Narcisse uh, and Meg Downey and Rosie Knight are there as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. It, it it's, it's not... I mean, obviously, from the fact that Russell's the only one who's working on Dread right now, mm-hmm. it's obviously not a, like, buyer books mm-hmm. at all. It's literally a, what does Judge Dread mean? And specifically, what does Judge Dread mean to Americans? Mm. And so you have Evan talking, uh, you know, very, very uh, smartly and, and very honestly about when he first read Dread. Uh he he simultaneously recognizes that it's a joke mm-hmm. and that he is the butt of the joke as mm-hmm. an American mm-hmm. and how you process that, you know, and then you have Rosie and, and Mike Mulcher, the moderator and Mark Russell talking about the, the political, uh, the political aspects of Dread mm-hmm. and feeds off of the rise of Thatcherism, mm-hmm. but also how it's perfectly positioned to comment about class issues today. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a very interesting listen. You know, I I do wonder the extent to which things like I just had that weird hit of like you know I bet it's probably a lot easier for Americans to connect with dread now than they used to be because I sort of feel like uh something like the treatment of I was just thinking about how much Springfield in The Simpsons is sort of a weird um, mirror image to uh, Mega City One and the various dread-ish things. Like it's n- particularly when you take you know a real early classic Simpsons episode like the Escalator to Nowhere and contrast it with like Jesus, you know, when everyone's like started the sport of like jumping off buildings and giant balls or whatever it is, you know, it's just, there's a, there's a, the whole 
piss take about the populace in in the mega cities and how that is sort of reflected in um, everyone's sort of perpetual dumbassedness that I feel like has become sort of because of the success of The Simpsons has become a little bit more of a I don't know. I think I would like to think maybe more of a staple in American culture than it used to be. Yeah, I I, I think it's a language that the more people speak because yeah. of the Simpsons. Right, right, and you so know? you know, be. Uh, and yeah, and and also like in many ways, there is like a uh, especially for like mid to late eighties dread. Mm-hmm. Like there, I feel like there's a, a significant crossover mm-hmm. uh, in terms of Simpsons and dread mm-hmm. that it is. Uh, a parody on consumerism or 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 populism, right? Uh, in in similar ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Although that being said, I'm you know I I'm I'm a little I'm a, very out of touch with The Simpsons. It's been a while since I've read Dread, and I feel like you know the, there's different things I guess going on. I'm sure now with how writers handle the megacity, you know, in that sense. Oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, just I'm well in many ways. Mm-hmm. For example, I would say that Dread has been progressively getting more uh, serious mm-hmm. for you know really twenty years now. Yeah, that, that, it's very rare to get like a, an old school comedy dread these right. days. Right. It's like uh, apart from I, the impishly named whatever block that it's happening on, you can actually sort of barrel down and have a relatively straight story. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but especially post Day of Chaos, where you know they're like, we have pretty much destroyed like seventy five percent of Mega City One at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, like everyone is fucking dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that obviously impacts things going forward, but the strip has never quite recovered from that mm-hmm. in a way that, as someone who does read it regularly, I think is is a positive. Mm-hmm. I think it's a way of of evolving the strip, and and keeping the concept fresh by creating this very different status quo. The the I don't like I because I mean Day of Chaos was shit six seven years ago now, right? But but as part of the aftermath was it wasn't just like all all the citizens are dead it's also that the judges are on the are are losing as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like lots of judges died as well mm-hmm. the judges have to basically go we don't have that many we don't have that big a force anymore we have to pick and choose where we're going to to police mm-hmm. uh which which again is is a a, a massaging of the of the concept mm-hmm. um but yeah, like I, when I'm comparing Dread to The Simpsons, I really am comparing like you know, you know, 1980 through 1989. Me too, me too. I mean, it's, since I'm the one who made the comparison, it is very much a, uh, it, it's it's it's, I'm well aware that it's anachronistic, uh, it's an out of date uh, comparison, probably for both, you know. Um, it's true. I haven't seen The Simpsons. Things. Yes, yeah, exactly. So I have no idea, but it could it could well go both ways. Do you think that? Do you think that? Um, uh, do you, uh, I always felt like, in a way, part of the um, satirical edge to Judge Dredd in the early years had a lot to do with kind of the idea of. Pfft, 
I, 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 that the that the population fails that the populace fails the culture or that the, the, the society fails the structure and then it seems to be the other way around now do you think uh, I mean, is that just a ridiculous? Because I'm just thinking of the idea of the the way in which the you know again early dread, which because I made it through the first five or six case files, kind of had a very strong undercurrent of like the system is bad, but it had a lot to do with the fact that kind of everyone were idiots. Like you couldn't yes, get exactly. the system it any is. better. It's, it's, the the first well maybe like I I think I've I've definitely said this in the way what Tumblr but I have the feeling you and I have talked about this as well the you've kind of got like a dread and doesn't really know what it is for like the first two or three years right that, that it's very much a, a, a series of flux and a series that is is trying to work out what it is and it, I would say it doesn't really come to terms with itself until perhaps the cursed earth. Mm-hmm. Which I want to say is like three years in or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, you like it very much as you have your mega epics, mm-hmm. which are like stories of of a scope entirely different. Like we have to go and find this child who in the future will save us, mm-hmm. or we have to uh, like the like Russia's attacking, or and it's like it's literally nuclear war. Right. Um, or, or you know, we have to go to the Cursed Earth, or you know, there are all all these these big plots, mm-hmm. but smaller plots were all, as you say, like these citizens are fucking ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and I think, well, I think there is undoubtedly, again, as someone who was reading the recent pack of 2000 AD, like I don't know, five or six years ago, I do f- kind of think that, like, w- sort of with those larger arcs there's a little bit more of the idea of uh the that 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 in some cases there there's a, a bad hand that's been dealt in many cases by dread himself like 15 20 years earlier but you know that is still paying off and playing out but in a way it becomes there there's a lot more direct addressing of the way in which um this the system is inherently flawed yeah the system's inherently flawed and and how and and that that, you know that started coming through vaguely in like the mid to late 80s Mm -hmm. uh where you'd have like people saying like oh why do we not have democracy uh and then it it it's become more and more of a a a consistent force in the story Mm -hmm. in the strip uh, you had Dread explicitly say that the Mega City One's treatments of mutants was wrong, mm-hmm. and and for reform, and for that matter, the reform to fail, mm-hmm. and for there to be significant pushback against Dread and and the judges as a result. Mm-hmm. That, that, that politically, that that proves to be very unsuccessful. You have the um, the origin storyline, which ends with Fargo, the first judge, telling Dreads directly, "It was never meant to be forever." Mm. This was always meant to be a temporary situation, mm-hmm. uh, and then you have something like Day of Chaos, which is explicitly because Dread nuked uh, Russia, right? In, in like 1980, mm-hmm. 
we are we are getting revenge by killing everyone mm-hmm. because of this action that at the time was played essentially as a joke. Mm-hmm. You know, like the end of the Apocalypse War is, or, or maybe it's like an episode or so after. Mm-hmm. There's essentially a line along the lines of like, the only way to win war is to get your retaliation in first. Waka waka waka, and then cut to like you know, 2011, where the entire series becomes because of this callous act mm-hmm. that you don't even think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Or that's not true. I was think about it, but like it's it's barely referenced in the story, and Dread does not, for the most part, have regrets about it. because of this. Everyone is going to die. Because of this this decision you made, because of you not thinking about the cost of your action, the cost of your actions are going to be so astoundingly vast, so devastating to everyone around you. Mm-hmm. And so this the strip has just as it's, as Dread himself has become relatively more reflective again within the confines of Judge Dredd. Yes. Which means, you like, you know, occasionally he'll be like, huh. <laughs> but, no, but, but like, really, like, sometimes that's all it is. Right. Um, the, the, the strip has become much more aware of the weight of history mm-hmm. and of, of the, the importance of decisions. And, and, and as, I mean, I, I don't even want to say, like, as John Wagner has become less clip. The strip is less clip, but the strip has become less clip. You would never see the end of the Apocalypse War storyline now, mm-hmm. because the strip, as a, as some sort of like self-aware whole, now understands that every decision has almost impossible weight when your job is literally being judged, jury, and executioner. And it, it's and the evolution of that is is is, is fascinating to see when you do read the case files. Mm-hmm. But it also means that you don't get like the Simpsons esque, you know, episodes now. Right? They, they they just don't exist. They they just don't. They don't make as much sense in this context, really. And so it's it's I, I I again I would highly recommend that Judge Dread podcast for people who are are interested in what we're we're talking about right now. It's 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 very interesting. Can I spin off this towards? Something that uh, I've actually got two things. Do you want me to talk about something that I loved or something that I did not? Uh, let's go with something you did not, since since we've got a lot of strong dread love right there. Let's let's change it up a bit. I, I also got the uh, a comp of the collection of Batman White Knight. Oh yeah, the Sean Murphy. Yes, uh, thing, and it's beautiful, but it's it's beautiful. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's um. Sean Murphy, I, I honestly, after reading White Knight, I part of me was like, oh, Sean Murphy's going to have a great comics writing career ahead of him because he's pretty much Mark Miller. Mm. <laughs> like, it is a comic that has the depth of a Mark Miller comic. Mm-hmm. I, it thinks it's really deep. Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> right. Well, and it seems to be deep enough for, I think it, both sold well, and a lot of fans were it's, really it's, into it's, it, right? It's, it's sold, it sold really well enough that they're doing the sequel. Yeah, yeah. So that, so uh, yeah, it's it's uh, so didn't did not dig it. Uh, do you want to do you want to try recapping it very quickly? Because I know that uh, the I mean, high the, concept the, the basic, sounds very basic, much yeah. Millerish. The basic the basic gimmick is 
the Joker is cured and then sets out to stop Batman, who has become the totalitarian monster. Mm-hmm. Um, spoilers, by the end of the series, the Joker's become the Joker again, and Batman's back to being a hero. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is, is is one of the reasons it really reminds me of Miller. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't have the courage of its convictions. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, like, there, there's, there's the reveal that there's... Um, there's there's a super weird reveal, actually, which is the Harley Quinn that is in the comics now is not the real Harley Quinn. The real Har- There's a second Harley Quinn. Oh, no. It's the one from the cartoon. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who really loves the Joker. Mm-hmm. And the Harley Quinn in the comics now doesn't love the Joker. Mm-hmm. Just loves the idea of the Joker. Uh, and so she's untrustworthy. But the first Harley Quinn... Uh, is the one that cured him by giving him ma- like essentially magic pills. <laughs> that, that by the end of the thing, he isn't taking the magic pills anymore, and he turns back into the Joker. Now, and it's like it's not magic pills; it's literally like you know, oh, I came up with this wonderful chemical concoction, blah 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 blah. But you know, essentially, it's magic pills. Mm-hmm. You know, of course. And, and, and when I say like turns it back into the Joker, he goes from looking normal to being white-skinned with the big mouth and green hair again when the pills wear off. Oh. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, so that's what I mean by magic pills. Like, it's, it's you know, it literally makes no sense. Um, so it's, it's, but it, it's, it's, it's very Miller-esque. Like, it's fast-moving, it's, it's amazingly confident. You know, it's, it's incredibly assured mm-hmm. of its greatness. At all times, and <laughs> it, and in some ways, like that's uh, charming isn't the right word, but it's winning. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like there are yep. times, you know, even in, in like Miller's Authority, like you can go along with it because he's literally just been like, "I'm doing this." Well, uh, yeah, with uh, me. it's so funny that I think you picked like one of Miller's strongest books, and you're like, "Yeah, even with you know, even with no, but, like, but yeah, but Jeff, like you say that, but if you went back and read Miller's Authority today." You really would just be like, oh, oh. Well, oh, oh. I mean... F- and I, I, I say that as something else I read this week. Uh, the collection that came out, I want to say last year, of like the first ten issues of Miller's Swamp Thing. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Yeah. Those, are, those are really bad comics. I, I, uh, I, I, I jumped in on that, I remember, and jumped out like in two issues. I was it's like, so no. staggeringly like mid-1990s. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, and this is a, this is the most dated reference, and it's intentionally dated. It's like an issue of Mondo 2000s turned into a comic. <laughs> oh, man. Hashtag kids ask your parents about the 90s. Uh, that's, that's, that's hilarious. Uh, you won't remember this. Oh, you might remember this. I didn't remember this until I read it. The first, like, two issues of the, the run, which co-written by Grant Morrison. Yes. I, I honestly have no idea how much he was involved. I don't think but, that much, yeah. But the first two issues keep going on about how, um, well, Morrison's definitely involved because, Alec Holland is recontextualized as someone who is searching into the the uh, the potential for human evolution as discovered by DMT and shamanism. Well, yeah, okay. Maybe he wrote that line in the pitch, but no, I mean maybe that's it. I remember reading that and being like, "What?" That those well, no, first exactly. issues had some really tough. It, I mean, uh-huh. yeah, it's it's just like. 
put that together with uh, like the, the the nascent Millerisms. Like mm-hmm. the dialogue is like Miller's dialogue has never really evolved, right. but it's there's like it's somehow more obvious when you go back and read something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also just like the like shock value for the sake of shock value. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alec Collins' ex-wife is alive again. And she's a prostitute in in Amsterdam, whose specialty is getting killed because she heals all the time. God, right? And you're like, what? 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 What purpose does this solve? Serve at all? Like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so those are... How did I get back onto that? Oh, because uh, White Knight is, is very Miller-esque, yeah. Right. Um, so well, I've oh, like a, the reason why is because you pointed out the authority, and I actually wanted to say that I've read some mighty shit Miller comics that came after where I feel like one of the things going for it is, like you said, that kind of... Uh, confidence, that winning sort yeah, exactly. of... exactly. That, yeah. that literally, like, you know, fucking I'm just going for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and you know, the other thing that's, that's very uh, in Miller's favor is he's always working with good artists. Right. Yes, absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the worst written comic in the world, mm-hmm. drawn by Raphael Albuquerque, Olivia Coppiel, like, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're going to keep going because it looks good. Yeah. Like, did, did you read The Magic Order? No, I haven't. I haven't yeah, even like, got near it yet. Yeah, it's first of all, you don't need to. <laughs> There's nothing in there. Right. There really is. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's it's it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. So you're mm-hmm. like, this is shit. However, yeah, I'm just gonna look at the next page anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so that's always been in his favor as well. Yes. No, he's uh, he's one of those dudes who is super smart about the artists that he chooses to work with and also the the fact that he's really aware of it like he I feel like he Azarello, um actually I think Tom King is actually like this very much now these days where King is super super aware of how much his stuff needs good artists to to sell it and very it seems to me very is very very much angling for the 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 quote unquote best artist at 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 all times and by best sometimes i mean like the current you know the the most successful in a certain way i suppose you know that again that whole thing of him being like m- wanting to have tony daniel draw the proposal issue you know, isn't that the story that he tells on on that one podcast? Oh no, uh, David Finch. David Finch. Oh, sorry, Finch. Right, trying to get Finch for that. You know, because he's like, I want, uh, you know, I want people to like, I want the comic fans to like, pick this up. I want it to like really want want them to be like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, kind of thing. But God, there was someone else who I was like, oh right, oh and of course Jeff Loeb, who I don't think that guy would be anything without his ability to you know, hitch his wagon to his various artists and be like, okay, you know, and by the well, same token, also give them things ways, to draw. Yeah. In many ways, like, Jeff Loeb was was the forerunner of this. Mm-hmm. You know, before Miller was like, I can have my pick of anyone because I'm going to split whatever the proceeds of this are 50-50. Right. Um, like, Jeff Loeb was like, I'm doing Superman-Batman. 
who the fuck wants to join me? Yeah. I'm getting just, you know, all the big names. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then he moved over to Marvel and just did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, let's not let's not forget Batman Hush, which is this crazy like uh, hearing like Dan DiDio refer to it as, you know, sort of an evergreen perennial, which I'm sure it is. And I remember like picking up every issue of that book uh when it coming out and even being God help me relieved because it was right after Ed Brubaker's run, which I think should be is one of those like things that it's like if I had well, let's face it, Graham. You basically are my comic book therapist. But if I had a comic book therapist that would be like trying to work through your issues of like, Jeff, why is it that you were so disappointed by Ed Brubaker's run on Batman? I mean, it was everything you wanted in a Batman run. And why did you enjoy Hush so much considering, you know, you think that Jeff Loeb is basically a moron? Like, what's happening there? You know, and, and, you know, Answer, maybe Jeff likes dumb Batman books, you know, but I, uh, th- there is a weird thing with, with Loeb and Miller. Oh, you know what it was? Cause I just finished reading Batman 53 where I was like, didn't like, but then it's followed by the first four or five pages of Batman Damned, which is, you know, uh, Lee Bermeo. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Azarella Bermeo book. Yes, exactly. And that was, I was like, oh, ooh. Oh man, this I, is. I, I have to tell you, at San Diego, they gave me, like, they gave all press, uh, a, a, an arc of it, uh-huh. like an adventure. But it's it's it with no dialogue. It's literally just the art. Oh, and see, I that's the best way to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> but I haven't even read it yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I can I can totally. I'd be like, oh, I can see where that's very smart. They're like, oh yeah, I um. Here, you guys, and then we'll get you the the word balloons later. Yeah, no, honestly. Yeah, that's... So that, that preview, I was just like, whoa, not my thing, to, to put it mildly. But um, but yeah, by, by comparison, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe Cold Days came off like pretty goddamn good when you see some of the other Batman stuff making it across the transom, so... <laughs> that they're uh, actually I- selling is like high-end, super prestige, like... This is our, you know, this is our it, thing, it's baby. It's kind of, it's kind of wacky seeing like all the different types of Batman stuff. Because mm-hmm. there's also the the Mark Silvestri books they announced. Oh Jesus! Like it's nuts to me that they're like Brian Azzarello and, and Lieber Mayo and Tom King and uh, Pete Tomasi and, and Doug Mankey. Mm-hmm. They're they're the ones being t- taken over Detective, right? Right. And Mark Silvestri, and you're like, what is Batman to you guys now? <laughs> Well, I mean, that, I, that's one of the things that is astounding when you look at all the Batman product that DC has always put out. Like, it's it's kind of stunning. Like, we used to talk about how much, um, uh, you know, when, when Star Wars, when Marvel got the Star Wars license, and it was huge for them, huge. You know, that whole idea of, like, if the Star Wars was books were their own publisher, they would be, like, the number three or four in the business. I sometimes wonder if you if you actually calculated Batman like you separated it out from DC, you know. It's I like, think I think the Batman books would outsell the rest of DC books combined. I I kind of think so. I kind of think that Batman is such a pillar for DC and always has been. So it's kind of amazing when you like dig through a back issue bin and there's always that thing of you get to that section of the Batman one shots of the 
Batman prestige stuff, and you're just flipping forever, and it's just like, holy fuck, some of the books, you know, they're like, oh yeah, you know, Bat, Bat Barbacol, where Batman actually, the Elseworld story by J.M. DeMatteis and uh, Rick Geary, where he like, leaves Gotham and becomes a pharmacist in small town Illinois in like 1910 or whatever, and you're just like, this was a book? They're like, oh yeah, it was it was a fucking three-issue book, you know? Or, again, that idea of like, they're like, yeah, Eddie Campbell will give you a Batman book and you can draw it like Eddie Campbell. And he's like, okay, and it's going to be all about a bunch of eccentric dudes like uh, murdering one another, but like, you know, saying Eddie Campbell type things. And they're like, sure, knock yourself out, chief. Go ahead. You just go on you know like batman is amazing that way like it really is and it's it's not like they'll let just anyone do it but they'll almost let just about anyone do anything yeah ex- it, exactly you know? well, it's, I, yeah and i mean remember the days of um legends of the dark knight yes. where it really did feel like just about anyone who ever had said the phrase i wish i could do a batman story would somehow get to do a batman story <laughs> You know, the thing that actually really always drove me nuts about Legend of the Batman, Legend of the Dark Knight, was, like, how dull so much of it was. You really had to keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, it wasn't a book that you could read month by month. No. Like, you really couldn't. Because it would be like, you know, this month, it's Kyle Baker. Next month, it's Rick Geary. The month after that, it's Bob Layton. Yeah. And you're like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bob Layton gets, like, some six-issue thing that's right. just, like, God, yeah. is this arc ever going to end? And it re- and it was, and it was like, the most tedious stuff. Like, really just generic, like, the Ross Al Ghul story by the numbers, you know? And you're just like, oh, yeah. God. Or worse, one where they'd be like, I've come up with a definitive, like, twist on Batman. This time, it's Batman, but he's got a gun. Or this time, it's Batman, but he's using knives. This time, it's Batman, but he tripped over and is in crutches. Like, And it really would be like the most generic story, but they do one thing different to the concept. Yeah. And they think that they're like, look at me, I'm fucking Frank Miller. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were there were some mighty poor Legend of the Dark Knight stories. There was, there was a few greats, but there's never quite as many greats as you, considering... How long? Did, I forget. Did they? Did that sucker crash at 150 or something? Or it might have got 200. Oh, I think they might have. I have just looked up the internet, and do you know how many issues Legends of the Dark Knight ran for? <sighs> I think. Make a were, guess. Was it 200? Make a guess. It was 214. What? Yep. Oh my God, that's insane. 214. Uh, its final issue was written by Christos Gage, with art by Phil Winslade. Hmm. And was released in 2007. Wow. Wow. That's like... Two, uh, 214 issues, seven annuals, and three special editions. Good God. Right? I mean... That's blasted. Well, and again, like we... You know, all the amazing Elseworld stuff, and... And again, oh, all the there, crazy one-shots. And... There's been so much Batman. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's yeah. genuinely amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, somehow, somehow people are still into the shit, and by people, I, I mean me. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, you you, you definitely are. It, mm-hmm. It's Here's the thing. So, Tom King's Batman doesn't do it for you. 
what would, what would you want to see in a Batman comic right now? Who well, would you want to see in a Batman comic right now? That's actually that that is a great question. I don't necessarily know if I. I mean, part of the time I'm like, yeah, Tom King just better. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but Tom King was good, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I you know I I don't know. I I think that there are times where I I've kind of hit a really passive uh. Uh, period in my my comic reading, perhaps unsurprisingly, and, and in some ways probably in a little bit tied to the digital stuff is I'm I'm not it can be really hard for me to be all like oh yeah I would love to see like so and so do a you know it, it just because I'm so like the people that are kind of up and coming are kind of like barely in touch with you know like i feel like the internet had a ton of people pushing for uh chris sabella's uh new image book uh, oh uh crowded crowded right which had a really fun premise to it and i was like oh, i should pick up that issue and then did not digitally i mean maybe i'll pick up next week or whatever but but I, w- I was kind of like, yeah, I remember reading like two or three issues of, of High Crimes um, and really liking it and being like, oh, yeah, I got to read more of this and then not. You know what I mean? So I just feel like half the people who are trying to humble brag their way through their X-Men writing gig that's coming up, I'm kind of like. I don't really know who they are at all. You know what I, I mean? I was going to ask you about the X-Men. Oh, thing. interesting. Um, I had some sort of like crazy thinking about understanding what, why the X, why Claremont's X-Men worked um, so Please well. Please share. You know that I love Claremont's X-Men with a genuinely stupid passion. So please right. explain. Yes. Uh, so uh, I follow on Twitter uh, the Xavier Files. And I think it yeah. might just be at Xavier Files. Really enjoy the stuff. And he had a he had a panel from that early Claremont Burn issue where Magneto has captured the X Men with surprising ease, and he has basically turned them into children. I mean, not literally turned them into children, but has put them. They've got these constrainment. Uh, uh, collars on them and there's nanny the robot that rolls around and is like petting you know like combing beast's hair and is talking about how she's going to come back and like you know read them a story later and everyone's like i'm in agony this is horrible like oh her voice i could throw up you know and and Xavier Files tweet is like, remember when Magneto did this incredibly fucked up thing and nobody's ever mentioned it since, which I thought was like really funny. But I also kind of had that moment of like, oh, yeah, because the other thing that's been floating around in my mind, also by Twitter, is uh, I don't know. I, we didn't get a chance to talk about the news of the um uh, Akira Yoshida's courtship of John Byrne. For no, Marvel, that was right? also something I wanted to ask you about. Right, so I'll get there about that. Uh, uh, maybe a month prior, the the wonderful John Byrne says Twitter account, which is a kind soul who deserves to be canon- canonized as a saint for essentially being a member on the John Byrne forum and then tweeting the stuff that John Byrne has said on the forum um, to people just you know, with varying degrees of 
like kind of a very well-rounded context of burn from like, oh, here's something that he said where he's clearly being an idiot to, oh, here's something that Byrne said that's of interest. Anyway, Byrne was talking about the fact that he was like, yeah, the the original X-Men were my guys. I was never that into the new team when they came back under Claremont and Cockrum, but I wanted the chance to draw them, and then I made them into my favorites, and then at a certain point when I realized that, that Claremont like different things about them and I would never really kind of get my approach. I kind of left the book. So, so those two things kind of congealed to me of like, Oh, this, this is the, the reason why Claremont's X-Men to me really hit is that Claremont's X-Men are the, the, you know, the new uncanny X-Men, the new team are, very very out they're not disguised as anything you know what i mean like you can sort of say that the pre-claremont x-men you know pre actually pre-ween and cockrum if you want to be technical about it are sort of the x-men in the closet sort of days you know where it's like oh you know everyone hates us because we're different but also more to the point of like we're trying to be a superhero book you know what I mean? Like yes, we're trying yes. to conform to what a superhero book is. And yeah, so exactly. and and the thing that's amazing about the the Claremont stuff that follows is is it becomes it really does become out. It really does become about any any it's like a superhero book, but it's also going to be a romance book. The, the big on the romance, it's going to like spate the heavy science fiction aspects of it, which were never like you know the Star Empire angle where you're just like what like anything and everything. It's just it's it it becomes as a genre almost crazily inclusive, you know. And I think the flip side of that. Is, is that there's a lot of stuff where Claremont's predilection for um, it, it, the the bondage and the domination always has a lot of uh, in the early days. Here's what the X Men the X Men are this: the villains insist on turning them into something else. So it's very much uh, we're gonna shove the X Men either back in the closet or we're going to make them conform or there's very much this idea of self-definition is this becomes this huge part of Claremont's X-Men almost in direct contradiction as a, as a direct response to Claremont's uh, peccadillos of, you know, here's an evil thing that's going to warp your personality and change you and make you like evil in a way that, that gives me creepy boners. But the flip side of it really is this idea of these characters again and again and again have to declare who they are. And that mm -hmm. really seems to me like a very um, constant, you know, it's that idea of like once you come out, you are kind of always in the process. It doesn't it. There's the first time that it happens, which is can be the heaviest and most traumatic, or when you first come out to your family, maybe, which might not be the first time that you come out at all. But but that doesn't mean that it's a process that stops as you go on, right? You're continually 
having to define and redefine yourself by people who don't understand you and try and jam you back into this prepackaged thing. And there's something about the nature of, again, that embrace of the self that is so different in Claremont's X-Men from the original X-Men team that sort of reading it, reading Byrne being like, yeah, I love the original X-Men. I'm like, man, no offense, because I've got fondness for some of those individual characters, but I'm not really, that that thing did not work. Like, it was really just inert in, for, in a lot of ways and for a lot of reasons. Um, anyway, so that's it. That's my, that's my Claremont X-Men theory was basically like, oh, you know, the TLDR, early Claremont has a lot of stories in which people keep trying to turn the X-Men back into things that they're not, and they have to continually reclaim their identity, and it's awesome. Okay, translate that to X-Men now. Like, I, I was saying last time it was a way what, that I was reading a lot of sort of like mid-2000s uh, X-Men. Right. Um, And that is... That idea of self-identification, mm-hmm. I think, was was significantly removed at that point, mm-hmm. and it had become a group identification. Right, and I, I think that that's been very prevalent since at least the Morrison run, to be honest. Well, so here's the thing that, and I could be wrong, is Morrison really does take the idea of mutant identity and quickly accelerates it to the idea of having, you know, the the mutant parts of town, essentially, you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I want well, also and the, the idea that, um, that mutants become not just, like, a culture, but the dominant culture. Right become become the dominant almost taste making culture and yeah threaten to become the dominant culture so so there's a lot with Morrison where I feel like you can really do see it in a, in the rubric of him being like yeah let's let's really look at what happens in the world with you know uh, with gay culture but also other cultures of oppressed people in which they do become cool and they do become like the nature of how people try to, you know, he really was looking at like, no, what, what, look at what we're doing in the later half of the 20th century for, for how capitalism and corporate culture deals with these things. And I do think that why, for me, like Morrison's got a lot of ideas th- sprinkled in there that he barely gets a chance to touch on about corporate culture until, you know, I think until he sort of begins, um, smearing it a little bit you know like i think he was kind of like yeah i really really wanted like the x corporation and corporations and then you know three drug trips later he's like yeah but i mean by which i mean like an intelligent culture like you know in your intestine like actual an intelligent bacteria that's the most powerful mutant of all right you know that kind of individual obsolescence Anyway, to to step all that back, one of the things I think is weird and may well have muddied the issues is, without having read it, only just sort of peeked in on it, I have to ask you, Graham, do you think it's fair to say that by that that A, there was a pivot from editorial and a really weird period where it felt like um, instead of looking to gay culture, 
the editors and the X team were kind of looking toward Israel. Do you do you get that kind of thing? Um, you know, because it seemed to yes, me. Yes, no, I, I I know what you're saying. Like, would you say the crossover was? I'm trying to think of a way to say this. This doesn't sound terrible. Mm-hmm. There is there is a a. To step back from the meta text for a second, mm-hmm. there is a moment in the text of X Men mm-hmm. after Morrison's run where they explicitly go, "You're not the dominant culture anymore. There's only uh, like 198 of you, right? Uh, and you're dying. Mm-hmm. And in order to survive, you have to create um, the mutant state mm-hmm. for way of putting it. Right. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I just, for me, it just felt like, like. Basically, the X-Men turn around, they claim an island of their own. They're essentially like, this is, you know, again, without having re- read the book, so I don't really know, it's just occasionally peeping an eye on it. It's this idea of uh we're no longer trying to acclimate and fit in. We're trying to build a safe place for ourselves and our people and the people in charge of that are slowly becoming more and more militaristic for reasons that are, you know, like, quote unquote, they have to be like they have yeah, no exactly. choice. Because they have to survive. Yeah, yeah they have I, I, to survive. You see that with um, Cyclops in particular, mm-hmm. like Cyclops becomes it, it, at first uh, militarized mm-hmm. and then by the time Bandit takes over the book. He has become a terrorist. Right. You know, like like he's crossed over from I'll do what it takes to survive Mm -hmm. to my definition of what that is, Mm -hmm. is, is, is actively terrorism. Right. You know, and, and, uh, Avengers vs. X-Men is, is where it happens Mm -hmm. because even before Bendis gets there, there's the, uh, whatever it's called, there's a five issue like prologue, uh, epilogue sequence. To Avengers vs X Men that the Gillen wrote, mm-hmm. and it, it's like very clearly setting up the yeah Cyclops is is like Cyclops now is a mutants right activist mm-hmm. quote unquote you know mm-hmm. where he's he's like he'll f- like he's turned into Magneto fuck all you humans right right you know, I I'm I'm doing I like I don't care about you guys anymore I'm doing it all for my people mm-hmm. um, but it's true like they they definitely pushed the uh, like they shifted the metaphor. Mm-hmm. In such a way that hated and feared became the dominant thing mm-hmm. about X Men. Mm-hmm. Like they dropped every other aspect of the metaphor for the most part. Right. And it became hated and feared. And it became, um, instead of you know, in, in, to use your your Claremont theory, instead of the mutant self identifying as themselves and taking on their own identities, mm-hmm. they took on the identity of mutant. Right. Right. You know? They took on the identity of mutant, and again, there was kind of a pivot, which sort of makes sense. Uh, I I feel like I wish that I was more on top of things about sort of um, Israel is Israeli history, and also sort of Israeli portrayal in the popular arts, because I feel like. It gets coded. I really feel like there was some element of Deep Space Nine that was coded toward. Like, oh God, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, and, yes. But never in ways that I could uh, t- talk about intelligently. It's one of those deals where it's like, if we ever had a like a special guest, uh, it's like 
you know, ask David Wolken if you'd like to come on and try and walk me through all this stuff so that I didn't, you know, be because I am so, so dumb so, about it. So we it. didn't embarrass ourselves. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. But it's like, one of the reasons I'm I'm so hesitant to even enter into this conversation is I'm like, I don't know nearly enough about this. Well, exactly, and I don't either. And and it's also an amazingly fraught topic, probably worldwide, but certainly in, in the U.S. Uh, and so I I find myself being like it's really it and without without having read the books on top of which, but I do think. One of the things that is part of the reason why it's a it's a weird shift, and I see why they made it, but it doesn't always map well, is I do think that there's something... Part of the thing that works about mutants is there's that... Um, what do they call it? It's, it's not... It's... Um, uh, essentially, the idea that you are that you're different from your parents you know it it's a thing that comes up in in deaf culture as well that that deaf culture exists as a separate culture because the kids are born like if you've got hearing parents and you have a deaf child the deaf child has uh can end up with a very different perception and they should about themselves you know that whole idea of the you know wouldn't you want to be cured kind of thing is like no, I want to be, this is who I am. I'm proud yeah. of who I am. And there's a culture that is about that. But that idea of suddenly you're very different from where you came from. And I feel like once you sort of start talking about mutants as mutants and as the hated and feared, and they're kind of sort of a homogenous mass, like that's a kind of thing that sort of uh, can... I don't know, doesn't quite deal with the schism. Like, I, you know, now that I think about it, I do feel like Claremont's X-Men also had um, scenes with the X-Men interacting with their parents to certain degrees, you know, which I think is also part of the reason why Kitty Pride is sort of a, a strong shot in the arm, you know, for the book when she comes along, in part because she is a, a character who is right at the stage of realizing of becoming very different from her parents, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And again, this is one of those things where Byrne was complaining of like, yeah, you know, my whole point was Kitty Pride was supposed to be an ordinary girl who gets these mutant powers and learns what it means to be different. But of course, by the third issue, Chris Claremont has already made her like some kind of super genius. And, you know, she's there's, he's like, there's no arc there. You know, she's already a genius, knows what it's like to be different from the people around her. So none of it really makes much sense, you know, according yeah. to Byrne, which I thought was an interesting point, you know, kind of like. So, OK, so yeah. let's let's get to the, the burn of it all. Yeah, the burn of it all. Getting burned. 2018. Uh, what the hell? Yeah, like right. I, I, as I said before, like I was in jury duty this week. And so I, I sort of saw things after the fact. Right. But. The idea that, like, John Byrne is going to go back to Marvel to do an X-Men book that picks up from where he left off is almost parodic. Like, it's it's insane to me. I what? can't quite believe it's real. You know, the thing that I think is really funny is it sort of reminds me, it reminds me of Trump. 
At the at the risk of pushing all the little hot buttons on the wait what soundboard all, uh, all in one episode, uh, sort of the way that like when tr- Trump was elected president and and everyone's kind of had this that thing of like, okay, but it's not going to be as bad as we all made jokes about, right? And then it absolutely one hundred percent is like that that whole thing of like I swear to God twenty eighteen is that the year. That if I, you know, I've read the it when someone shows you who they are, believe it, right? You know, is yeah. that that's the year for this quote. So for me, I'm like, when Marvel announces that they are going back to actively courting their older readers, their older customers, I don't see why the thing with Burn is really that surprising. And again, sort of the way in which him, the hand, you know, his hand being shaken by C.B. Sobolski, uh slash Akira Yoshida is very much a uh, like the parody is in the fact of how on the nose it is, right? Isn't I mean that's kind of the thing of like, yeah, no, Marvel said they were going to double down on this. Marvel's doubling down on it. Like I and I think what what I find fascinating is the extent to which. Ugh, Sorry, people. Uh, Sapolsky, I always assumed, was just going to be kind of an empty a puppet. But considering how much huffing and puffing seems to be put into the X-Men and Marvel and, and the X-Men as part of Marvel's franchise, I, I do think that part of me is like, maybe they do like maybe Sobolski really does have some pull because Sobolski does seem to be a pretty heavy duty X-Men nerd again if we're judging by the work that he was you know um getting when he was pretending to be someone that he absolutely 100% wasn't you know I it's it's it, it, it makes you wonder I'm like geez maybe that puppet's got a little pull up in the big offices after all you know but burn i think i would be shocked if they make it past issue three you know in a way i think that burn's gonna go right off the rails or is going to have some sort of problems with marvel editorial well before then even in the framework of his you know, oh, he gets to tell it the way that he wants to tell it. And maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm totally wrong in, in that. But, you know, by which well, I mean it'll make it 14 issues. But she, Well, first of all, you saying that reminded me of, like, Jim Starlin's continual. Yes. Right. You know, I'm friends with Marvel. I'm not friends with Marvel. I'm friends with Marvel. I'm not friends with Marvel. Right. Um, I'm just – I can't it, – there's multiple reasons why this is surprising to me. One is – I thought John Byrne had stopped making comics, and that's not a joke. Mm-hmm. I legitimately thought John Byrne had stopped drawing comics, mm-hmm. and I I honestly could have sworn that he had announced that, mm-hmm. uh, and that was the reason he was doing those Star Trek photo comics. Right. Like I I really one hundred percent believe that. No, I, I Second, think you're right. Yeah. I've seen some of the pages of his X Men series because he's been posting them on. This is how it got started. He started posting them on his his forum. Right, because it was a, uh, it was nothing other than like him doing it for fun. Right, and I'm genuinely surprised at how close it looks to his X Men work way back when. Mm-hmm. Like surprisingly so, considering the uh, let people I can say changes in his style since then. 
Um, thirdly, Mar- when Sabalski came in, the 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 Marvel take, both publicly and privately, when they were trying to leak this as mm-hmm. as a good thing, was Sabalski is going to bring in new talent. Sabalski's talent himself is seeking out new creators. Is is making connections with new creators? Is talent management and discovering new people to work in these comics? It is hilarious to me that not only can I not think of any new creators that Spolsky's brought into Marvel, mm-hmm. but that Byrne is probably going to be his highest level signing. Mm-hmm. John Byrne, whose heyday on X Men was genuinely thirty years ago. More, more than thirty years ago. Oh, I thought you were talking about X Men: The Hidden Years. I'm like, Graham, I'll give it to you. It's, you know, I wouldn't. You're call like, that it's, it's twenty five, but still. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but like, what? When did he leave? Like, what? What year was Uncanny X Men? What was his last issue? Oh Wonder- God, it was around like eighty three or eighty four. You know. Uh, let's see. When did one forty two come out? Because I'm fairly sure that's his last issue, right? Uh, wait, what? Oh, no, 140, 144. One, yeah, one, one, yeah, he leaves like 143, 144. Right? 144, and that is 1981. Yep. So he has not been on that book for 37 years. Yep. That's, I mean... Well, I mean, you again, he did do the X-Men the last years, but I mean, that was... Yeah, but, yeah, but as someone who read those comics, Jeff... <laughs> I mean, he also he also scripted X Men for like two issues when when uh, Claremont left. Oh, that's right. Yeah, boy, and they were kind of dull, as I recall. Yeah, but I mean, it yeah. was it was a weird period in general. Like, I don't I don't think you can particularly blame anything on him with right, that. Right at that particular point, yeah. But it's like, I mean, what what was thirty seven years before nineteen eighty one? <laughs> oh wow! You know I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Right. It would basically be like, huzzah! We're bringing back Joe Simon to like Captain America. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it, and it's it's probably like, can you think of a more high-profile creator signing that Sabalski's done at Marvel so far? Because we're we're coming up on what? This is the tenth. This is ten months after Sabalski got signed as editor right. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I guess it was ten months, but who knows? I mean, is he he's te- is he been in the office? Like, I don't know, Graham. I in the office like six months because I remember there was a whole thing where like he, yeah. it, you know, it was so rushed that he didn't even have a work permit. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, it's just it's it's honestly seems like if someone wanted to come up with a fake news story to complain about Marvel. This would be the new story they come up with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so when I saw it, <laughs> like on the phone in the middle of church, I was like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> that that no, that can't be right. Right. Because but why would why would anyone do why would anyone think that's a good idea? But you're right. You know, it's it fits in with the whole Marvel legacy idea. The whole you know, mm-hmm. let's get back to, to basics. Mm-hmm. Just and at the same time, you know, Marvel in the same week, Marvel's like, okay, we're relaunching on kind of X Men, mm-hmm. um, as a as a as a maybe weekly series. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, we have the weirdest announcement for for this. <laughs> we're like, we're relaunching Marvel uh, on kind of X Men. It's an ongoing series. The first ten issues are weekly. 
uh, and they're written by three people, and each issue is drawn by a different person. Mm-hmm. And then I, I emailed them, and I'm like, so it's a weekly comic. And they're like, eh, we wouldn't say that. <laughs> like, like, they were like, we'll tell you about the release schedule after these ten issues later. Right. And it was like, why, what? Yeah. Why would you launch with weekly issues and then be like, well, now it's monthly? Like, why would you do that? Uh, well, I mean, what do you think? Like, huh? like, we'll, we'll make, like, because it's, it's to get fucking market share up, obviously. Like, but at the same time, don't run it as Uncanny X-Men in that case. Or or don't announce it as an ongoing series. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is called, this is Uncanny X-Men. What's it called? It's actually called Disassembled, which is in itself hilarious. Right. Um, but you know, say like call it X Men Disassembled as a series, and say it's a it's a ten part weekly series, and then we'll relaunch Uncanny X Men. Yeah, but you don't want to. I but they don't want to do that. You know what I mean? Like, of course they don't want to do it because because everything that you're saying is is this is the, again this is Marvel being Marvel. Like you said, when you're like, well, of course market share. But that's precisely the reason. They're going yeah, to do I, yeah. 10 weekly issues. They're going to, to force the retailers to order as many issues without any kind of sales data whatsoever. Oh yeah, yeah. You but know? No, but also like, imagine how many variants is Uncanny X-Men 1 going to have? Oh god, right? You know? So, they'll be doing all their tricks because someone on the whiteboard said the 2018 is the year that we return X-Men to prominence. Like, we have to, you know, we're saying it, we're we're saying it here, we've got to point to the figures there, whoever we're reporting to, you know, has decided this is the thing, and we're going to do the thing. And so, it's, it's Marvel just doubling down on it. But yeah, of course, there's, you know, there's no way that you can do uh a weekly series like if you're go- if you're going to do a weekly series you know it right you know but i personally think that they're like if the sales burn is bad then they just switch it to monthly and they've got like a ton of ton of issues in the can after that first 10 if they do remarkable and amazing things with it you know they're like maybe we do bike weekly like dc's really pushing the bi-weekly thing um, so far in a way that looks like it could be sustainable, you know, and and Marvel has had variations on that with Spider-Man and what have they, but I do think they're kind of like, oh, well, yeah, we can, we can do weekly, or can we? Well, I don't know, but we're going to say we're going to do weekly, you know, and try and push everyone all in. But if it's just an event, if it's X-Men disassembled, even if they stop publishing the X titles, which this way they don't necessarily have to do, like, they know they're not going to get any as many people on the wagon as much as this is the start of the new series and we have to push it so, you know, so that we 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 pump those numbers as, as high, as artificially as high as we can. Mm-hmm. So that they it's can just... turn around and be like, yeah, hey, look at our numbers. Take that like Brian Bendis's Superman or whatever. I don't know, like there whatever it is the DC was is it Justice League, I guess, where DC's like was able to push like 200k numbers or something like that. Yeah, it was just, yeah, Justice League, Justice League launched really really well. Yeah. 
Um, like I, I saw this. I was having a hilarious conversation with someone that um, they were like Superman launched at number five. Superman issue one was number five in the top ten mm-hmm. uh, for July, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, "This is a disaster for DC." <laughs> and I was like, "This is nuts! Like, this is how weird things have have turned in this market now, mm-hmm. where Superman's number five in the top ten, which it hasn't been for fucking ever." Right. And sure, it's the first issue, but still, the idea that it was also the, I want to say, third best-selling book of DC Book of the Year, of the Month, behind the Batman Wedding issue and Doomsday Clock. Right. And I was like, why would DC be upset about that? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, they're not. On the other, I do kind of see what they're saying. As you, as you know, and I, as I'm sure you do, you know, like Doomsday Clock is one thing. Doomsday Clock is is again, it's an event on steroids. You know, it's got all it's it's an all Doomsday in. Doomsday Clock has also had like really surprisingly strong staying power in terms of sales. True, like it's a bi monthly book that is at this point. I'm not even sure if it's actually bi monthly. Right, I think it might like be slipping schedule even within that. Mm-hmm. But like issue six was the second best selling DC book of the month, and I I want to say still selling over a hundred thousand. Right. That's nuts. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's totally true. So, you know, and again, King with the wedding issue, like it's a super, it's the special event that they hyped like crazy. So. You know, so yeah, in comparison to those, but on the other hand, is Bendis is Bendis is a brand. You know what I mean? Like yeah, he's super and also Bendis did, Bendis did not come cheap. Yeah, exactly. They put they had to put a lot into it. They're 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 putting a lot into it, and yeah, they need to see that return. I personally think that what they're going to get quite likely is. A much stronger stain power, but we'll see. We'll we'll really yeah. see. I'm. I I've got to say, um, I've read the next week's issue of Action already. Mm-hmm. Hey, Superman is like, I, I say this even though Superman issue two was hellishly slow. Yeah. His Action Comics is moving far faster than I expected. Mm. There are subplots I honestly thought were like going to pay off, you know, a year down the line, mm-hmm. that are paying off in issue two of the fucking comic. <laughs> well, that's good. I think that I and think I was that's like, very oh, necessary. This is not what I expected. Right. Yeah, it, it's it was it was a nice read. Um, staying on Bendis for two seconds. Did you see Peril issue one? I did not. It, it's it in terms of writing, it's kind of nothing special. Like mm-hmm. it's it's exactly what you think it's going to be. But Michael Gatos, I think, is coloring his own art, and it's amazing. Mm. Like it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I say that as someone who was like, yeah, his his Jessica Jones is okay, but no, the the colors in particular on peril are stunning mm. it's 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 honestly a book that i could see buying for the art alone hmm. based on that first issue i will have to check it out i wasn't i wasn't tracking is it is it one of the you know dc bendis first books essentially? yeah no it's, it's the jinx world because right. i know interestingly enough jinx world is being published by dc with no dc logo on it mm. wow it is, to all intents and purposes, a DC published alternate company. Right, right. Well, that I'm that's interesting, and I again they 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 wanted whoever negotiated Bendis's deal was really good. You know what I mean? Just in the his sense wife? of like what, in all seriousness, was it was it not uh, his wife that, that did it? I don't know. 
I, I have no idea. I mean, I assume. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I thought she was like his business manager, but I didn't think that. I, I sort of assumed that he would have some sort of agent. Yeah, I, I don't know, but whoever, whoever did it did a really good job. Yeah, they really did because they had some very specific ideas. They were not afraid to ask for things and uh, I assume stick to their guns until they got them, although they, they probably didn't have to stick that hard. So, yeah, we'll see. I, you know, I mean, but the marketplace is crazy, Graham. It's, it's always this bullshit of, you know, like, oh, did you see Hawkman Huck, issue one, you know, was like the the number eight selling book in the market, you know, as, as it's, this is a renaissance for Hawkman, you know. I, I honestly hope that's not true. Like, it, I don't know why. I had this weird visceral reaction of like, oh, I hope Hawkman issue one didn't sell that well. Yeah, I don't I don't think that it did, which is interesting because it's it's Brian Hitch and, you know, that metal that metal one shot. I think was also Hitch and sold. I think that sold really well. Of course, that issue sucked horribly, which is why I think that perhaps the Hawkman number one um, uh, uh, did not probably sell as well as it might have with Brian Hitch attached. And frankly, I got to tell you, I'm jumping off that book as of uh, issue three. Uh, there were there's some some whatnots who are a fan of the book and and liked it and wrote me saying so and I'm like, huh, yeah, I'll have to check it out. And I'm like, nah, it's not really my thing. Second issue. Uh, third, I'm like, I I got somewhere I, I gotta go. I'm I it's I I gotta go watch <laughs> the my summer hair I gotta be. I, yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I, uh-huh. I can't stick around. <laughs> Sorry, it's 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 not you, it's me. So yeah, it's oof oof, the Hawkman. Not not so crazy with the Hawkman. So um but you oof, know who knows the Hawkman is the name of my new spin off <laughs> Oof, the Hawkman. You know, that actually would be kind of great. Uh, you know, before, because we, where are we? Well, we got plenty of time. I, uh, Leaf, the amazing Leaf of Mission Comics was kind of like, hey, did you guys read Howard Chicken's Hey Kids Comics number one? No, I didn't even know it was out. And then I saw someone talking about it on, on the internet, like yesterday maybe. And uh-huh. I was like, shit, is it terrible? <laughs> Jeff, please tell me about it. Please tell me about it. Oh well, I I basically was like, okay, I like Leaf is awesome. I will I will do as he commands, and I picked it up, and I had I had seen like he sort of said like, oh, I hope you guys talk about it, and I had read like the four page preview, and I was like, or glanced at it, and I'm like, this does not look like my thing at all, because of course, like all chicken stuff, it more or less starts off on like Broadway or Times Square, except sixty seven instead of fifty seven. But uh, I I get why Who Leaf gets a was like job within the first ten pages. Nobody seems to get a blowjob, although although I mean, I, it is about comics, so well exactly. The thing that is amazing is I know why Leaf was into this because I've always talked about how at a certain point my sort of um, fantasies, I guess, or my fanfic went from being about the characters uh, in comics. To being about yeah, the characters who wrote the comics, right? So, I mean, the fact is, this is kind of—I think it's—it's a—it's a huge—it's a fucking jumble. But because I was having some problems with Chaikin and his art, and it flips around, it starts off basically. Well, it's—it's it's much like the synopsis. It's all over the map. It opens in 1967, and then immediately flips back to 1945, and then. Four pages later, I think it jumps up to 1955, 
and then you know the book ends like around 2001 and uh, you are following a cast of characters that what's great is as time goes on you're like oh so this this sort of tough talking take no shit secretary who's like wise cracking with the fellas that you sort of suspect is going to end up in bed with one or two of the artists who've come back from the war somehow ends up being like you know flo steinberg eventually and then ends oh up, no dude there's nothing better than the than the than the three-page sequence or two-page sequence where the Gil Kane analog goes to bed with the Flo Steinberg analog, and it's just like, oh no, yeah, I was like, no, no way. And of course, there's the Stanley analog and the Jack Kirby analog, uh, and then and then honestly, some analogs where I'm like, I'm not sure who that dude's supposed to be at all, frankly, like you know. But the Gil Kane one was the one where I was like, wait a minute, you know, hold, hold your horses here. Um, it's, 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 it's entertaining, maybe not really in the ways that, and I have to say, I feel that Chaikin, for whatever reasons, like, I just, his stuff has, has just fallen into complete. A completely static approach you know like he's got in some ways he sort of reminds me of Byrne in the sense of his story the way that he decides to tell stories um, like he you can literally see him like pick out his page layout from his set of pre-saved templates on his computer kind of um, and sometimes he'll use many of them and I'm like oh He's really fond of this is the fourth time he's used that layout. And part of me is like, I think he's going for symmetrical layouts, but it just feels static. And there's ways in which his cartooning at one point, I thought guys had scars. And then I looked more closely. I'm like, no, I think that's just his cartooning. Like, you know, it's very strange. Like there's a lot of people who really look like either ventriloquist puppets or have kind of maybe undergone some sort of torture where, you know, by the Joker where they've had like their, 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 uh, cheeks slashed with a knife. Like it's really a weirdly prevalent motif until you like, I'm like, Oh, 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 he's cartooning, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's sorry, leaf. It's not good, but I have to admit it is kind of addictively awful. Because watching <laughs> the characters well, pop the, back and forth. Yep. Mm-hmm. Did he? Did Leaf think it was good, or did Leaf think it was the same thing? Like, is he just enjoying the bad of it? See, this is what's great: is Leaf was just like, "I want you guys to discuss it," and I think I'm really just going to disappoint him. I'm kind of hoping that he was like, "I want you guys to discuss it," and he was kind of like, "And especially Jeff, because because I feel like I am the one." who spends a lot of time, or I don't know, I've certainly spent some time making noises about, you know, crushing on Flo Steinberg, but, like, seeing how this played out, I was like, on the one hand, there's a little bit of the, um, it's, it's not a bad fit. Also, I think there, there's a lot to be said for the way in which we talked about how uh, Black Kiss 2 ended up being much more about a metaphor for the comics industry 
than we mm-hmm. were expecting. I can see where Leaf's like, well, you guys got to cover this because here's Jacob. Because he, he he's literally just making it by the comics industry. Yeah, exactly. And but and everything you're saying makes like it's as if you're describing the like my worst idea of what it was going to be when it was announced. If yes. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you're making it sound like it is. Howard Chaykin doing a Howard Chaykin comic while also basically adding innuendo that he has heard through his years in comics. You know, I the thing which might be true, although for me, and I can't help it, part of me is like, I don't know for sure, but I really had that thing of like, Gil Kane is not straight. You know, I don't know. I have to admit, <laughs> I don't know. It never did it cross my mind that Gil Kane was straight. So when I read that scene, I was kind of... Wait, okay, I'm I'm super curious. Why? Uh, why? Why? Because Gil Kane kind of did the... He was, a, he was a little bit of a dandy, like, especially in the comic book world. He was... He was incredibly erudite. He was very charming. He always dressed with style. He always put himself together with composure. Uh, and yet, I honestly, I honestly feel like your argument is he lived up to the stereotype of a gay man back then. Well, yeah, kinda, kinda. If you were, if he was the character on Mad Men, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's the that's the guy who was gay. Like, I totally admit, I have absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing. Never read a Wikipedia thing, but there was also. I tell you, the other thing is, is that. In some of his very long comics journal interviews with Gary Groth, he was, like I said, incredibly educated and incredibly erudite and also seemed incredibly lonely in a way that just always struck me as... Now, some of that may be colored by the fact that Kane was very aware, was A, sort of aware of his... um, what what he thought of as his shortcomings as an artist, which really weren't, but I mean, he was really wonderfully. Oh no, generous. he he was he was he was astoundingly self-critical. Yes, exactly. Like like almost crippling. So, and Kane is also one of the few guys who was daring enough to try and break out of the industry uh, with self-publishing ventures that failed. You know, like he his name is Savage is. Like, kind of an amazing read, but it is also very much him trying to break out and also try and bring something new to comics. Like, Kane was aware, loved the pulps, like, really loved some of the genre fiction and and the higher end of the genre fiction and how he thought that stuff was transcendent. And I think he always felt that the comic book versions of those were kind of poor... Um, sub surrogates, and I think he always wanted to try, which is why his uh, his name is Savage, and some of his other books, I, I want to say Starhawks, maybe not, were were really text heavy. I mean, it was Archie Goodwin, as I recall, writing the text for his name is Savage, but still, if that was something that Gil Kane wanted, you know. Anyway, yeah, it's completely. I don't know. I mean, yeah, how would I? God, then. Do they even have? I don't even think they have a personal life on his thing. He's got his biography. I, I, you, I also looked up his Wikipedia page. It says that he died and was survived by his second wife and kids. Oh, well, see, there you go. Second wife Elaine, son, and two stepchildren. Obviously, he got married twice. But I was very much like, 
yeah, still don't. I'm still. I, you're like you're like still still don't believe it. Still sticking to my theories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, t- two beards is what you're thinking. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> so true. So so yeah. Uh, so part of me at that point, I was like, well, if this is just going to be delightful fanfic, where where we get you know stand-ins even if it's like if it's stand-ins in the industry who go on to do things and of course i think it should go without saying like chicken has talked in interviews about he you know adored gil kane you know and yeah and honestly that's one of the things that i think is really interesting in the book is for the first eight pages it's really just morose trickle down stuff and you even see kane like in 45 and 55, but it's not until you see him in 65 where he's got this over hair and the suits that you're like, oh shit, that's Gil Kane. Of course, I should have picked up on this sooner. Uh, but it's it's really interesting how, you know, seeing Chaikin draw, you know, the Kirby stand-in. Like, at first he's just a short guy who's who's walking around angrily swearing in, in the in the uh, in the sequences in 45. And in 65 when like Marvel Comics is is starting to hit uh, is hit big you see Kirby drawn at a board and with the cigar so so there's points where what Chicken when Chicken is drawing stuff where he has like a fondness that sort of breaks that really clearly shines through for the for the people it's kind of lovely and part of me is like hey man like in this comic it it sort of loosely follows the flow of reality, but it also, to me, kind of doesn't necessarily. So I'm like, and there's also, there were also sequences where I was like, I'm sorry, there's like seven people here. I literally don't know who any of these people are. Like, I do not know, like, literally, like, I do not, his analogs are, and sometimes that's fun, is is once they come into their own, again, it's like, I have no idea who that character is and suddenly it's like, oh, that's him. Oh, that's kind of fun. Like, there's a little flash of recognition but it's still, I will go back and then reread the earlier scenes and I'm like, yeah, it makes no sense. Like, it's not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm, it's tough. Chicken, later Chicken is not my cup, uh, you know, at all. So, (laughs) it was interesting reading this but it was also kind of sad to me because there is a way in which it's um to me it's a lot like reading a uh, latter day pension if you weren't a fan of pension you know what i mean like i'm a fan of pension so reading something like bleeding edge is i have a ton of feels so to speak because in a way particularly bleeding edge which is set in new york immediately before and after 911 is like it's pension writing about a writing about the world that I don't want to say Pynchon made, but that he foresaw so well. And so seeing him write it and also as a historical novel is like, wow, where is this going to go? And the sad part is, is it's going to go, uh, so like not so unwell that you're going to find yourself nostalgically wishing, you know, that he'd written it 20 years earlier, you know? And like with Chicken, it's like, Chicken doing a story about the comics industry in which it's, you know, the right mix of dreamers and hustlers and people trying to get laid 
and um, you know clever crude businessmen who you know are never going to give up what they've managed to wrestle away from someone else like it's it's kind of the perfect chicken subject but to me it's like yeah and it just comes too late like and I don't know and I'm not a pinch I'm not a chicken fan so like maybe someone's reading this and is like finally this is great whoo and the best part is he really left in all his pre-rendering lines so you can see the scars on their cheeks where he managed to make sure that their mouths lined up with their ears, you know, or whatever it is. Like, it's just... <laughs> that's the way he works. Yeah. That's, that's the, the chicken promise right there. <laughs> the chicken promise. That would be great. Howard Chicken, my mouths will always line up with the ears. I guarantee it. <laughs> It's so funny, like, I, I, I've not seen this book, but I'm remembering, uh, Satellite Sam. And the ways in which that book is clearly the same artist who worked in, like, American Flag, mm-hmm. but is also clearly that artist after they've lost a couple of steps. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where the, the page layout is, as opposed to American Flag, where that was innovative. Mm-hmm. It's it's exactly the same. Like thirty years later, it's exactly the same. But actually, like the 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 character work, the anatomy mm-hmm. has started kind of going soft. Oh yeah, you oh, know yeah. it's it's kind of you know people people all of a sudden are are looking like a little bit squishy and a little bit like off. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and the light work is might be tight in like the close up inset panels of faces because right. that's what Harry Jacob does now. Yeah. But then when he draws like a body, mm-hmm. you're like he just kind of like really sketched out that arm. Yeah. Like yeah, he yeah, was yeah. just like, you know, here's basically like a curve. That's how an arm works, right? It's so it, funny. This is great. There's but, a, it, there's... but it's true. No 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 because that, I'm laughing. That's what he does now. It's so it's so strange that you're like, Yeah, it's totally Howard Jacob. But it's Howard Jacob who either has stopped caring or who's like has honestly just started getting a little worse. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's the reason why I like it's so funny is there's a scene where Two characters are shaking hands, and it's a full, like, it's a two-shot, full-body two-shot, and I was just like... Well, there's like, instead of a face somewhere, right? Oh, like, yeah, from, of course, on, of course. The right oh, of the pond. Oh, yeah. my God. And, and like, the face is probably facing to the, to the right, because yeah, yeah. that's where almost all of his faces go, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's really tightly cropped. Like, yep. you won't see the top of their head. You'll literally see it, like, from their forehead yep. to just above the, the, like, just above their chin. Yep. Yep, yep. I'm yep. actually like modeling it if you could see. It's like a voguing. Of course you are. Oh, that would be great. The chicken voguing. Anyway, uh yeah, so there's there's a scene of them shaking hands where it the anatomy is so bad that A, even I noticed it, and B, I was like, Oh, I hope Graham read this because that would drive Graham nuts. Like this is <laughs> like these people like both have to have such tiny little like flippers basically in order like their hands are so short their arms are so short for them to be able to shake hands and then the rest of their bodies are yeah it was just i was like oof oof but you know i mean i'm like eh, eh. i have to say somebody on twitter again because this is it my week was so busy this is the only area where like you know the the one social media the platform where i get to pretend people are talking to me uh, you know, I was reading it, relying on it a lot this week, 
And somebody said, like, you know, it's kind of a shame that people bash sort of bad anatomy in comics and saying, like, I, they were like, I feel like superhero, like, one of the great strengths of comics is their ability to, like, change anatomy around sort of dramatically to, like, fit the situation. I was like, oh, that's kind of, that's kind of a great observation. Because, you know, I, I tease, I tease, I tease my wife about having feet like Kirby hands, you know, and, uh, and which is, it still gives me so much joy, you know, but I kind of <laughs> have that thing of like, yeah, I, you know, Kirby's, one of the things that's amazing about Kirby is, is how much, like, he did not, like, you do not necessarily care about anatomy, like, after reading a Kirby book, you know what I mean? Like, everything, but it all works, right? And there's there's a little bit of that, like, part of me is like, okay, so maybe if these two characters look more or less like, like two penguins trying to high-five each other, you know, <laughs> even though they're supposed to be regular human beings in a room shaking hands, maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe I should just kind of let go of my hang-ups, man, you know, like, for real. I, I, yes, Jeff, this is, okay, this, from now on, why not you heard it, Jeff is letting go of his hang-ups, Jeff is now going to be footloose and fancy-free, <laughs> the neuroses are leaving, everything is going to be different now. That's right. New Jeff Lester starts here, all new, all different, all right new, here. All different. Actually, I'm sure it will be exactly all the same. Because the one thing that I read this week that really charmed and delighted me was Monthly Girls Nazaka Kun Volume Nine, which I swear to God, I is, I I at a certain point I started reading more slowly so that it would last longer. Aww. Aww. That's kind of great, though. Yeah, it was great. It was. I was kind of like, wow, this really doesn't happen to me that often. Boy, I just, I, because part of it is, is that I honestly, it had been so long since, since between issues volume eight and volume nine, probably not that long, but because, you know, the whatnot who hit me to it, I, I was like four volumes in, maybe five volumes in, it was right on the threshold of six. It was like, it just felt like it was kind of this wonderful water pump of delightful manga, uh, you know, meta comedy and romance. I was like, I'm so into this. And and then it was like, oh, where? Like, I felt like I waited months for this. So I don't know when the next one's coming out, but can't be can't be soon enough for me. Um, oh, also, I went to the San Francisco Public Library, and this was amazing, Graham. They have prison school in there. I think I, you know, I talked about the absurd insanity uh, of of Prison School Volume 1, and I finally went back and read Prison School Volume 2, which was even more just ridiculous. And the fact that they have... Volumes three through eight in the graphic novel section of the main branch of the San Francisco Public Library is kind of shocking to me because that is a book that is simultaneously like it it takes the talking butt shots of the image generation and pushes it to a whole new level like that by the time you get around to to volume three, you are literally having conversations that are taking place from the pedenda, like from a pedenda eye view. Like it is stunning, stunning 
that book. And I would have to say, Graham, not your cup of tea, arguably not anyone's cup of tea, but it is so... Apart from yours. I'm not even sure it's mine. There was like nine months between I read volumes one and two. Like, volume one was amazing in the sense of, like, the idea of it being, like, the great escape with, like, the world's most ridiculous, like, um, panty shots. Like, panty shots that are over-the-top parodies of panty shots while somehow being, like, absurd panty shots. Like, really, just... Prison school was like trying to have your cake and eat it too, but um, it is, it's really funny. Like, it's funny in a very crass, stupid way, but it's pretty good. And also, as people might remember, I, I was like, yeah, hooray! You can actually now read the first 14 volumes of S&M uh, on Comixology Unlimited, and they've released the next six volumes all in a go. Well, someone read the next six volumes all in a go, and afterwards I was like, oh, what have I done with my life? Like, really, it was like... Uh, <laughs> But it was amazing. I got to tell you, it's that they went places that I was just like, this book is like, like I was kind of that weird thing of like, you really have to see it. But I also kind of felt like, but you also really never should. Like, I, I don't know, like, Graham, you never really had this. But like, I went, I don't think, but I went through a period where like, um, what was it? There was a guy who like did the. I don't want to say it was psychotronic, although maybe it was. There was a guy who basically was doing movie reviews of uh, Grindhouse films. Like, he was just going, back when he lived in New York, he would, like, just go to Times Square, and, like, his zine was just reviews of all these really horrible movies. And, you know, and it was it was post-Tarantino was very much a thing, where people are like, oh, yeah, I saw I Spit on Your Grave, like... You know, I like own all. Oh yeah, no, you know. I, I I remember that. Like that was that was a badge of honor. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so there's a little bit like S and M is like re- reading 21 volumes of 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 a really scary grindhouse. Uh, also, I have to say the thing that really bummed me out was I described it on Twitter. I was very proud of myself as being starting off as being like basic instinct on bath salts and then getting crazier from there and I'm like, I'm so proud of myself and then I thought about it and I'm like, oh shit, no, it's fatal attraction on bath salts I'm an idiot and I can't take this is actually, weirdly enough it was one of the few tweets a few times in my entire life where I've ever been retweeted by Tom Spurgeon so I wasn't going to like actually write back and be like hey everyone, I was, I was wrong. wrong yeah, exactly improper analogy you know, but it's okay It's I, I kind of had that thing of like boy, it's a good thing no one pays attention to me anyway because, uh, whew <laughs> really dodged one on that on that goal, so uh yes, S and M, woof, Monthly Girls, Nozaka Kun, hooray! And I feel like there was oh, Prison School, uh, somewhere in between. And I keep thinking there was something else that I read that I really, really enjoyed and liked between the last time we talked and this time, and I can't remember what it is. I don't know. Come on, I know, Graham. I know. I'm uh, trying to think. I, of it. I I have something. I have something to recommend to oh. you again. Um, and I'm fairly sure you might have read it or at least started it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you read Brink, which is now in, collected in two volumes, the 2080 series? No, I don't think so. R- Brink is great, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Brink is is really, really, really good. 
And I think you might dig it. It's Dan Abnett and INJ Coolboard. Mm-hmm. And is kind of a detective story, kind of not, uh, in a post-Earth human civilization. Earth has essentially been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Everyone now lives in space stations. Mm-hmm. And it's, in theory, a police procedural mm-hmm. about uh, two cops dealing uh, who discover first of all a murder and then things go awry from there someone described it as true detective meets outland hmm. uh it goes really great places that sounds pretty uh, damn interesting places that um at once feel very 2080 mm-hmm. and not 2080 hmm. they to to sort of unpick that a bit without giving the story away mm-hmm um, the very 2080 is there is a class component to this, mm-hmm. uh, much more so in the second volume than the first, but it's present in the first because the murder suspects or the the, the murderer suspects are um, connected to religious cults, mm-hmm. and the religious cults essentially use unions as their fronts. And things kind of go from there. Hmm. And it's it makes some it makes some great choices that you would only see in like a two thousand AD. And when I say that, I like you'd see it in manga as well. You wouldn't see it in mainstream American comics, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I simultaneously want to spoil and not spoil. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's because it's one of those things that you're like, oh, that's that's the sort of move that you can only do when you don't actually. When it's not in a comic of its own. Right. You know? Hmm. Um, but it's, it, it's one of these things where the mythology gets larger and much more focused as it goes on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where the story is going. Having read the two collections, I'm like, I fucking love this. I would like, I would read the next collection right now, but I have no idea where the story is going. Huh. Uh, the end of the the first collection is so out of nowhere, <laughs> like so out of nowhere. As in, the final page sets up a cliffhanger that genuinely has nothing to do with anything else you've read in the book. Huh. That in the second collection, they don't really follow up on it, apart from it being a background element until the end of the second collection and then you're like oh this is really central to the story somehow I just don't know how huh that's very odd huh like I really I really want to just be like Jeff they do this and then you're like oh I get it now but I also don't because the the moment of discovery right like the last page of the first collection you're like what (laughs) that that like you know I can tell it's a big deal but also I don't even remember that ever being mentioned in this book before now. Hmm. Interesting. It's kind of funny because I, I'm like, huh, I would have to read it on my own because it's such a weird, like, it's it's great that they, they must have done something very well that it ends up not feeling like a cheat, but it again, but feels like a very... But here's the thing, it's not even a cheat because it's so out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like, the equivalent is, um, imagine, like, think of some police procedural. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and then at the end, and this is not an analogy, like I'm going to say this and you'll be like, oh, I think I know what you're talking about and you don't. Right. Right. But at the end, like after they've, they've solved the murder, mm-hmm. there's a post credit scene where aliens come to earth. Right. Right. It's like that out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, what? <laughs> what, what? Like, what does that even mean? And like, it sets up the a, a character dynamic in the second series in the second collection mm. but it's literally stays in the background all the way up until the end wow and then you're like okay this is clearly a big deal but i don't know like i literally don't understand how it's a big deal i i, I don't get where you're going i don't understand even what direction you're going in right now i just know that you keep on telling me this thing happened and it's clearly very important uh, where was I with Brink? Sadly, I got so distracted by what the uh, by you fuzzing out. I, I, no, I, let, yeah. I I think I think we said it. Like I think okay. I finished. Okay, that's what I think, but I wasn't sure. Okay. So news-wise, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, because this distressed me actually, is over on Comicsology there is a sale unless it's gotten pulled by now. Uh, of oh, it's the Tokyo Pop sale, right? The Tokyo Pop sale, which is really fucking weird because it is it is a bunch of trades like people may remember Tokyo Pop back from the days where it was an actual publisher uh, of you know first there was the they got some really great licenses relatively inexpensively and then they started paying people for to do it's, it's still happening the original I, manga I, yeah through I just the looked it up yeah, supposedly through the end of, of August 30th, which I'm very happy about because I can talk about it, is basically everything that, that Tokyo Pop might have published, uh, you know, they, they, for example, the first volume of King City by Brandon Graham was published by Tokyo Pop as a Tokyo Pop original. Becky Cloonan had a series, uh, East yeah, Coast it, Rising. East Coast Rising, which yeah. is also there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much stuff where, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Svetlana Chekhanova, uh, who did like two volumes of DramaCon and maybe another thing. Like, these are people, there were a lot of people at the time who were very eager to break into the business, and Tokyo Pop was like, hey, you know, we will publish you. And at the time, people were like, hey, you got to be careful because these contracts seem bad. And, uh... And they were. And apparently they were, because part of me cannot actually believe, because some of this stuff was, like, Brandon Graham managed to get the rights to King City back and finish it and publish it uh, at Image. And I don't know if anyone else was quite so lucky, but the fact that, that the first city, uh, first volume of that is there, the fact that there is Disney uh, manga here, like of Beauty and the Beast um, and uh, the Descendants, like I'm like, this stuff cannot like I'm lit, part of me is literally like they cannot still have the rights for this. I think they are honestly being like, well, we said we had the rights in perpetuity for blah 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 blah, but like I'm like, can they really? Because they're they're also asking like, 
ridiculously super low prices for it. Like it's on sale for like three dollars. And these are these were very much published as in you know tr sort of traditional manga chunks of about you know two hundred pages ago. So uh, I'm like I'm like people don't buy these, you know, because I really feel that it's, I mean, part of me is like... There, there does just seem something strange about this sale. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, really... like, these books, if nothing else, have surely not been in print for years. No, of course. Most of them, I believe, uh, have been very actively out of print for, like, a huge chunk of time. But, you know, I'm... I don't know. So... I'm a little creeped out by it, and I'd be really curious. I do hope that someone, like, you know, gets a chance to dig with it. There's some stuff here that I got to admit. I was like, huh, that looks kind of interesting. But, you know, I'm, I'm as much as I want to read three volumes of gothic sports, I, like, really don't want to... Support uh, this In company. any way, yeah, at yeah. all. Like, they, they were garbage who treated people horribly and that I do not want to put any any money in their pockets whatsoever um yeah mbq for fuck's sake by philippe smith you know like some amazing stuff i feel like mbq is another one where he managed to get the rights back like that's been republished since like i have no idea why this stuff it would almost be like if dark horse started turning around and suddenly was reselling their Star Wars volumes for super cheap. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's, it's like super it's very strange. I also have to tell you, I'm looking through the sales just as we're talking. Uh, -huh. uh Dynamite's Project Superpower sale is also really weird. Oh yeah? How so? Oh well, it's because it's Project Superpowers, but it's also uh Garth Ennis is a trink called Love, Howard Jenkins American Flag. <laughs> um uh, like Black Kisses in there. I, uh, under under the rubric of a Project Superpower Super sale? sale? Yeah. Wow. Right? That's hilarious. I should have realized uh, with 266 items, like... Yeah, we, there's not that many Project Superpowers comics. Yeah. I, I, yeah, this, this, just that many covers, you know? Like, I, wow, I'm... You're right. Holy shit. Maybe it's a sale... Is it a sale celebrating the... 10th anniversary of Project Superpowers by doing a line-wide sale on Dynamite stuff here? Yeah, you can get those... Jesus. Those Shadow Masterworks volumes and three volumes of which. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. I can tell you're very excited. I can tell that that's exactly what you want to get right now. Yeah. Oh, I will say also uh, Marvel, however, has a Cosmic Epic sale and you can get Al Ewing's Ultimates and Ultimates squared. Yeah, uh, they're they're three ninety nine and two ninety nine. Yeah, the, the and you shoot super cheap. people. Yep. If that sale is still happening, does it say when it finishes? Yeah, it finishes tomorrow. Never mind, it's not actually going to be happening. When <laughs> That's right. By the time <laughs> the thing goes one. up, yeah. Although it's not true. This this will go up like you might have a few hours if you listen to it as soon as it goes up. Yeah, that's right. And you've made it to the end. I don't know. We're really we're we're pushing it, but uh, yeah, could happen could happen you might want to try it. yeah there's some of those prices are really there's never been a better time to buy a space punisher <laughs> there's never a good time to buy space punisher there that we go graham probably... there we go it was it was an easy assist but i gotta tell you i was like ah 
If Graham doesn't follow through on this, Cosmic Space Punisher. It's gonna be. Did you know that talking about the sales as I said earlier that you know Superman was the fifth best-selling comic of of last month. Right. Cosmic Ghost Rider number one was the tenth best-selling comic of last month. Yep. Yeah. A lot of heat to that Cosmic Ghost Rider. I got to tell you. Of oh, course, part what brave new worlds, etc. <laughs> you know, I definitely have that thing of like, yeah, I'm like. Cosmic Ghost Rider. Like, I might try it out at some point. And I'll, I, well, I say that. I'll just wait for it to hit Marvel Unlimited. This is my new thing. Like, I gotta make a list of stuff that I gotta pay attention to when it hits Marvel Unlimited, um, rather than just forgetting about it or seeing it. Like, I, I will say this. Uh, the first chapters of Avengers No Surrender are on Marvel Unlimited now. I wanna say at least the first four issues, maybe the first five. Right, right. I super enjoyed that. Right, and part of me is like, because it's done, it's they did it as a weekly event, right? Or was that yeah. just for the first half? No, part of me is like, yeah, you can, right? Graham? Yes, I, I I highly recommend it. Okay, so, yes, I was like, oh, right, as a weekly event, you could just, every week there's a new issue up, you can keep kind of engaged. Also, people, you have uh, all of Master Kung Fu, like an idiot. I was like... Yeah, that's going to say. It's, it, it's all of the on, because they've added a shit ton of yeah, Master of No, Kung Fu. they just kept uploading and uploading. So the original run, which is the thing that means the most to me, the 120 issues or so, maybe it's 124, are up. All of them are up. I was, I was, And I realized, I'm like, I'm sitting here kind of... I j- had finished off the Epic Collection which I enjoyed so much. And I'm like, you moron, why don't you just download 12 issues at a go for offline reading on your iPad and then just just power right through them. I'm like, that's a genius idea, Jeff. And then I did that on Monday and literally <laughs> have not read a single often, one yet. Yeah, you haven't talked so yourself like that? What's that? You haven't talked yourself like that? <laughs> Jeff, you're so right. Oh, yeah, all the time, Graham. All the time, let me tell you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like, Jeff, good point. Uh, I, just, I knew I kept you around for some reason, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, well, anyway, so yes, people, don't buy Tokyo Pop. If you have access to Marvel Unlimited, holy shit, Master of Kung Fu, and then the Avengers Weekly Event, which you I can... Have, I have never read Master of Kung Fu, should I? Oof, that's a really good question. Uh... Because part of me is like, yes, absolutely, because when it's smoking, it's great. But I don't... I'm... Bear in mind, I don't like Paul Galassi. Mm-hmm. Do, isn't he on Master of Kung Fu? Isn't oh, he yeah, the, like, he's kind of the like famous, the defining like the, artist. Yeah, yeah, the famous artist of yeah, yeah, Master of yeah. Kung Fu. Do I like Paul Galassi? Um, I have no great affection, one way or the other, for like Kung Fu, Kung Fu flicks. Right. Um, I feel like it's very outside of my wheelhouse. Yeah, it, but at the same time, again, it's on Marvel Limited, so it's free. You know what? Yeah, seriously, let me let me investigate more, because like by the time that you get to the end of the first epic collection, which is really the first twenty, like it's maybe the first fourteen or fifteen issues, plus a couple of the giant size Master of Kung Fu's. Nothing in there. The stuff that really stood out to me, where I was like, oh yeah, you gotta wa- do this. I, I think as a non Galacy fan. I don't think that you would dig. I suspect, like, Galassi manages to hold on through to 50 and then leaves. I think that's right. He's replaced by Mike Zek. And so I think the Zek stuff might be 
closer I do, to I do jam. love Zick. I do love Zick. And then when Gene Day comes in, Gene Day really takes both the Galassi and the Zek influences and channels them in very different ways. And I think you might actually like that as well. So I think Strictly is a curiosity value. I think you might enjoy powering through it after a certain point. Um, if, if, but I'm trying to figure out, let me read a little more in, especially because part of me is like, I know you don't like Galassi, but part of me is like, I kind of don't feel like you could appreciate Master of Kung Fu without kind of appreciating the run from like, say, around issue 38 through up to 50, you know, but I could be wrong. Um, well, again, like it's it's free. Do you know what I mean? Like all right. I all I would be investing would be my time. Yes. And that really, for me, does make a difference. No, I know. And yeah. how charitably I, I, I yeah. read comics. Right, right. Yeah, I uh, yeah. Let me get back to you on that. But yeah, part of me is like, I feel like everyone should read Master of Kung Fu, like whether they like it or not. <laughs> I I think in a way, just because it's kind of that weird thing of it's always shocking to me that there's a gener you know a generation that had no access to it whatsoever, you know, and it's really fun well, for the longest time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because of the rights issues, just forever and ever and ever. Um, and it's 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 kind of odd like you know you know uh sort of in the same way that i'm like yes you gotta you know everyone should go read that son of satan collection or like the skull the slayer collection you know people are like why would i do that to myself i like myself you know and yet i i'm still like nah that's that doesn't matter like you <laughs> yeah you, you <laughs> really needed to understand the 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 whole old horrible people like myself who are continuing to suck the lifeblood out of the industry and insisting that people like John Byrne be returned to X-Men, which like, Ooh, I, I know you're, I know you're going to pick up his first issue. Yeah. I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that, that, you know, uh, never mind. It's I'm, I'm not that fascinated. I take it back. <laughs> you're like, I'm kind of fascinated in theory. I part. No, I'm it, I think it's really interesting because we've done the Baxter building. Like I'm like, why isn't Byrne coming back to the Fantastic Four? Like, wouldn't that be like he was highly acclaimed on the FF? They're trying to bring it back as a, a title, and they're also trying to, you know, quote unquote, court the older readers. If Byrne consistently ranks in the top four of everyone's like four, the FF's four greatest run creative runs, like. Why wouldn't you put him back on that? Is it because he really has nothing to say? Because he's yeah, because I, I think he do? thinks he's finished it. Yeah, you know, I guess so. I mean, he didn't even. But but that's a weird thing. Is like that's one where like Burn left in mid storyline, even. You know, yeah, exactly. He got like, kicked off the book. Yeah, he he literally could have turn around and do like an FF Elseworlds, you know, that sort of makes more sense. In, in the way that he's like, he had a whole bunch of ideas that were overwritten and then he was like booted. And like, I'm like, you know, that sort of strikes me as a little more, I don't know, feasible, I guess. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. Mar either he's not interested. I, I'm sure Marvel is definitely not interested. And that's that. So. 
Dan Slot said no. Let's just start a new rumor. Dan that, that would be great. Oh. That would be. We should people. You know, this is the problem. Is is like you know, we really should start to starting Dan Slot rumors. It's just it. Dan Slot rumors are the worst rumors to spread because he sea lions his way into any conversation where people are like trying to spread them. You know what I mean? So it would never get any traction. You can't. Like, Dan Slott could be, like, murdering people, and you could never talk about it on social media, because everyone's like, ah, oh, a certain DS person is back to killing prozies in the East End, you know, and, and of course, someone's <laughs> This gonna... took a turn. This really took a turn. <laughs> it did, didn't it? It was like, time, <laughs> and now it's time for your two minutes of Jeff's insanity. da 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 So, yeah. Anyway. It's clearly time to wrap up this podcast. Yes, because Jeff's starting getting into libelous opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, if you want more libel, um, <laughs> look look at our show notes. Jeff's right. Narrowwaywalkpodcast.com. Um, we have a Tumblr, waitwhatpod.tumblr.com. We have an Instagram, instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpods. We have a Twitter account at waitwhatpodcasts. Jeff has a Twitter account where he can libel anyone he wants because I won't be involved in the slightest. <laughs> at LazyBastard, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I have a Twitter account where I'm really going to try not to libel anyone. At Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast. Your money will go towards our eventual legal funds. <laughs> Jeff, tell everyone about our Patreon. I, I definitely will, Graham, but one second here. Just doing a little tweet here. It's like, wow. Wrapping up the podcast. Graham are you M. Just so told me that Dan Slott likes to <laughs> strangle prostitutes. <laughs> Shocker! Exclamation point and post. Anyway, we're a Patreon-supported podcast, uh, which means that we um, are able to 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 know that we will <laughs> will be able to, if not fund, have a legal fund for our defenses. We'll be able to buy things in prison from the commissary, such as um, chocolate bars and shoelaces. Uh, and that's all thanks to the, well, I mean, let's face it, it's you wonderful listeners and your um, continuing support of us listening to us ramble on and on that got us into this mess in the first place. Uh, that's Here's Jeff quickly trying to abdicate responsibility for what will eventually send us all to prison. Uh, and... Um, we, we have to definitely thank the, the, the fine fellows, uh, from Patreon, including, uh, the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios and Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for their continuing support of this podcast. Um, you guys all help make us, uh, awesome up until the point where we go to prison, which I suddenly realized is actually another piece of comic news that we didn't talk about, and it's probably just as well. Graham? Wow, way to just slip that in. I know, uh, right? Everyone he's talking about, I guess you're talking about Jared Jones being sentenced to six years? Yes! Yeah, that was... uh, Super quickly, because we really are wrapping things up. Um, Jared Jones, the former writer of a bunch of comics, and honestly, a writer I really enjoyed in the 1990s. Yes, um, and was... some very good books, too, about both yeah. about the comics industry uh, and yeah. other topics. Yeah, his Men of Tomorrow is actually a really, really good book. Um 
was sentenced six years for now was possession of child pornography or was there more because i seem to remember there was at least one at one point there was rumored to be more than just possession uh yes according to the articles that i ended up reading if i remember correctly he was in possession of child pornography he had uploaded uh a video of uh people engaged in sexual acts with a minor and i believe that there was an investigation that he had flown to britain to have sex with a minor uh that was part of a different investigation that got folded into his charges um so it's it's a pretty shocking turn of events uh jones had originally pleaded not guilty and then i think within six months or so reversed it to a guilty plea uh and has ended up as a result with some very strange uh perhaps because of his willingness to to plea bargain he was allowed out on bail which apparently is not a thing that is very common for um, I, I i honestly literally didn't know that was a thing for people charged with that <laughs> yes exactly which is very it is very surprising but for whatever whatever sets of reasons uh my understanding is is that a yeah released on bail uh, essentially wore a wrist, uh, an ankle bracelet and, uh, was under home arrest, essentially. And, uh, although he was just recently sentenced to six years in prison, he does not show up to prison until November 30th. So, which is also, I think, very strange. Not something that I'm very aware with as being a thing that is done. Uh, also, uh, my understanding is, and I think maybe this is some other factors, is that, Jones had complained about trying to get his computer and related digital material not not the not the Troy of pornography back but complained that he needed access to his computer and his files because it was he wanted to finish the book that he was working on I believe before he went to prison which may have been part of the arrangements for both the plea plea the guilty plea and um, his desire I mean, to be at home. Surely not, because he's like no one's going to publish that book, right? I I don't know. I mean, I honestly am not quite sure how to put it. I mean, the weird thing is, is that yeah, he I uh, you know, I I honestly don't know. I mean, the thing that's apart from the the book where he talks about which was very, very well regarded and I, and I think will be the one at the very least that will very quickly be, is, I assume, already removed from print, where he talks about the importance of uh, exposing children to um, uh, disturbing material, essentially. Uh, I, you know, a part of me is like, you know, Men of Tomorrow and some of the other stuff, it it doesn't really touch on the nature of his crimes in any way and everyone and they were well regarded books before so i know i i i I honestly think it's all gonna disappear we'll see you may or may not know this there was a a um a collection of green lantern work that was scheduled to come out before all this this broke yes and dc just killed it oh yeah well let's put it this way 
the comic book people, I'm sure, I think that stuff is dead. But some of the some of his pro his, his work stuff? shows up in one of the Mark Wade collections, oh, Flash collections, because there's a crossover issue. Right. Um, and I I remember being surprised about that because mm-hmm. it was after like DC were like, yeah, remember we're going to do an entire series of this Green Lantern? No. Yeah, we're definitely not now. Yeah, yeah. we're. we're Definitely not. Yeah, but um, um, so so yeah, there there you go. But yeah, that was I did. You just stuck that in just as we we're saying goodbye. I know, I know, kind of creepy of me. Um, but it was it was sort of on the to do list, and I was and it, sadly once I got to that phrase, I was like, okay, I can't make this many prison jokes without you know w- without acknowledging with the elephant in the room that I have conjured. So so yay me. That's basically you, you, you could have tried. <laughs> I know, I know, Graham. You're absolutely right. I'm a monster. Uh, It's true. I I apologize, everyone. Good news. Next week is a skip week, so um, you could you your your ears get themselves a a lovely, pleasant break. But we do hope that you'll join us the following week for, I guess, what'll be a wait. What that'll be coming out around September third or so. Holy smokes. Uh, and also, don't forget, there were two episodes of Baxter Building last week. So, if you think of it, we somehow got four episodes this month. How did oh, that happen? Wow. You're right. I'll I'll tell you why. Jeff and I couldn't shut up last week. <laughs> it's true. It's sadly true. We, we would not stop talking, so you get two episodes. There you go. I was very happy to see that people were enjoying the retroness of one of our conversations being split into. But honest to God, I just was genuinely worried that a three and a quarter hour file would be too big. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, it, it seemed like overkill. Yeah. That's that's our promise to you, listeners. That's right. We will not try and do that long again. Sessi realizing that I think this is two hours forty five minutes now. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, it's it's a little weird because um, we spoke a little beforehand, etc. Yeah, that being I, said, I still. Yeah, we need to do. Yeah, yeah we're, it's going to be over yeah. two hours. We're going to shut up. Yep. We're yeah. going to shut up. Hey, everyone. Bye. God bless you. <laughs>